Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. The reality we live in can be a very strange place. Most of the time, fact being stranger than fiction. How will we ever start to understand this reality we live in unless we question everything? Join me and a guest as we unravel the mysteries of this reality one topic at a time. This is Increase the Reality with Shane Jones. What is up, Inquirers, and welcome to the ever-expanding show that I accurately named Inquiries of Our Reality. It's been a while since I've touched base on geopolitical topics, but with the current status of the world, I felt the need to bring someone on who is extensive in those concepts. This one gets really deep, and I think you guys are going to really appreciate this guest's research and insight. But before we can get into that, if you guys don't mind taking an extra five seconds to rate the show on Spotify or to take an extra 30 seconds to review the show on iTunes. I would definitely appreciate it. It's a good way to help the show grow and get seen by more people, of course. And if you guys aren't already following the show on social media, I'd definitely appreciate it if you uh, wouldn't mind giving the show a follow. There you'll get updates on anything new going on with the show, be it new episodes or anything that I deem worthy of posting, of course. While you guys are doing that, if you guys don't mind popping on to the uh, Telegram or the Discord to have some uh, awesome conversations with some awesome people, uh, myself included, I'm currently trying to build up the Discord more. I've been restructuring it a little bit, uh, trying to make it a little bit easier to navigate, trying to make it a little bit more user-friendly where uh, people can pop in and have uh, specific conversations about specific topics. And it's been growing uh, and it's going to keep growing as long as you guys keep popping in there and uh, helping to grow it a bit. And the only way that's ever going to happen, of course, is uh, with your guys' help. So anything that you guys are willing to do, pop in, drop some topics, uh, drop some weird stories that you guys may have. I definitely appreciate anything that you guys are willing to do. And if anybody is interested in being a guest on the show, whether you're an author, researcher, experiencer, contactee, uh, paranormal investigator, uh, as I usually say, the list goes on and on. I'd love to sit down and have an open-minded conversation with you. Uh, There's multiple ways to get a hold of me, one of which is through social media, of course. The one that I'm the most active on is Instagram, so that'd probably be the best way to get a hold of me if you're going that route. Uh, You guys can also email me at increaseofourrealitypodcast at outlook.com. Or you can go to this link tree and fill out the submission form, and that will go directly to my email. Uh, Due to me being a podcast, of course, I send out a lot of links. So for whatever reason, the uh, email servers tend to think that I'm spam. So make sure that none of my replies get lost in your spam or junk folder, because I do respond to every single message that you guys take the time to type out and send me. Uh, If you guys enjoy my work, uh, you guys can also go check out the other stuff I do, which is uh, Bizarre Encounters with my two awesome co-hosts, Orin and Jenny. Uh, There, just like the name, very fitting, uh, you'll find a lot of weird 
bizarre encounters, uh, some including cryptids, some including paranormal stuff, uh, some including UFO stuff. Uh, anything that pertains to a bizarre encounter, you'll find it over there, of course. And uh, if you guys want to keep tabs on all the stuff I do, because I'm always expanding, always trying to do some new different types of shows. Some of those include Bite Size Bizarreties, which is... Uh, which is almost like a spin-off little sideshow that we do that's part of uh, Bizarre Encounters. And coming soon here in the future, as a little side note of this show, which will be a Patreon exclusive, uh, before you know it, inquiries, thoughts, and theories will be a new thing that I'll be doing. But uh, if you guys want to keep tabs on everything that I'm doing, go and check out Open Minds Media. That is the, uh, I guess you could call it my podcast production company or production company, whatever you want to call it. I'm sure you guys have heard the little jingle in the beginning. I've talked about it a bunch of times. So definitely go and check out... uh, Open Minds Media on social media to get updates on all that cool stuff. Uh, if you guys want to support the show, there's multiple ways to do so. The number one, of course, is through Patreon. Um, building that up, like I said, Inquiries, Thoughts, and Theories is more than likely going to be an exclusive show on that. Uh, I might drop a random episode here and there in the main feed, but the majority of that's going to all be over on the uh, Open Minds Media Patreon. And the reason I call it the Open Minds Media Patreon is because with it, you don't just get one show. You get I have all this stuff that I do. I try to incorporate it all under one thing so it's a little bit more bang for your guys' buck. Uh, you're not just getting one specific show or having to pay for inquiries and have to pay for Bizarre Encounters. I just put it all together and call it uh, the Open Minds Media Patreon. And uh, there's multiple tiers, of course, so you guys can go and figure out which one suits you the best, but you'll find things such as ad-free episodes, uh, lives of episodes, live replays if you're not able to make it to any of the lives, which is basically the raw video format of the episodes. Uh, You'll also find exclusive giveaways, uh, discounts to the merch store, a lot of cool stuff going on over there. So uh, go and check it out. And uh, the other way, of course, that you can support the show is through donations, and you can do so through PayPal, Venmo, Cash App, or even Red Circle, which is the uh, RSS host for the show. If you go down to the bottom of the show description, you'll see something along the lines of donate on Red Circle. Click that and uh, donate whatever you guys feel like uh, donating. And with those donations, of course, they're going to go towards multiple things. Uh, The biggest one this year is going to be hopefully me and my co-host being able to be go to events, get out there and really meet you guys. Um, it's also going to go towards hopefully me being able to do more time and spend more time on what I'm doing here to be able to eventually hopefully do this as a full-time thing where I can spend all day just researching for you guys, putting together a phenomenal show for you guys. But the only way I'm ever going to get there is with your guys' help. And uh, just like anything, man, you put a lot of time and put a lot of effort into stuff. And uh, eventually, like I said, you want to be able to do it full-time just because you love it so much. But part of that, unfortunately, with the current rat race that we live in is that you have to be able to support your family, support your house. And the goal for anybody, of course, is to be able to find a passion that you really enjoy and be able to do that full time. So hopefully with your guys' help, I'll eventually make it there one day. But anything that you guys donate, I definitely appreciate. And uh, if it doesn't give you the option, of course, to uh, put a name or some kind of personalized message, uh, please shoot me a message so that I can give you guys a shout out on the show because I definitely want to show you guys how much I appreciate it. And uh, the third way that you guys can support the show is through the uh, Open Minds Media merch store. And there, just like the Open Minds Media Patreon, you'll find not just inquiries of our reality, but all of the stuff that I do, um, all in awesome logo t-shirt designs. Uh, Soon enough, of course, I'll probably include the inquiries, thoughts, and theories logo, which only a select few, I feel like, have actually seen that. But I put a lot of time and effort into it. I think you guys will really enjoy that one, too. I always request that if any of you guys pick up anything from the merch store, if you guys don't mind sending me a picture of you guys wearing it, I'd love to repost it on the page, give you a shout out and show that there's a love and support out there in the world. And while we're talking about love and support, if you guys want to go and check out another awesome creator, you guys can go and check out Joe over at Crypto Theology, making a bunch of awesome merchandise pertaining to cryptids, UFOs, paranormal. He's always got some awesome stuff. One of the newest ones that I've seen that I really enjoy 
is his new shirt that's uh, basically supposed to be a parody of The Crow, if you guys remember that movie slash comic book from back in the 90s, but it's done Mothman style. It's it's really cool. Do yourself a favor and uh, go check it out. And of course, everything that I've mentioned, all available under the link tree, which is down in the show description. And with that, let's get into the show. Please welcome to the show, author and researcher, Matt Arrett. How's it going today? I'm doing good. Thanks for having me on, Shane. Absolute pleasure to have you on the show. Uh, I've heard you bounce around a little bit, and uh, I was really looking forward to actually getting to sit down and have a conversation with you on the show, because I know you have a lot of awesome information that you dive into that the listeners will really enjoy. I, I hope so. I hope so. I mean, I, I, I'm thinking that we're going to have a fun time, and uh, there's obviously a lot of directions that we can take this, and um, yeah, I mean, I... I, I I'm, I'm the, I tend to try to be the context guy because I, I find like a lot of people in uh, especially a time of crisis where the, the fear emotion uh, becomes more prevalent and dominant in a culture when there's a, a great degree of uncertainty. You know, you're sort of like a got, got this image of deer in a in a forest and just kind of detecting on some deep level that there's a fire. And uh, in those moments when fear becomes too active, people's minds tend to get a little bit too polarized and a little bit lack. They, they, they start lacking rigor, um, which makes people jump to conclusions looking for who to blame. What do I do? Um, and unfortunately, when you're in a world where you have intelligence agencies that have crafted narratives to cattle and corral the mob into desired um, directions, that's not good. That actually can become very dangerous. So I think that uh, the context thing is very useful to give people a sense of some of the nuance shaping our past and our present and that the, the different directions that we could go in the, into the future. Um, so a lot of the books that I've written on history, I, I, I've, well, I'm guessing that we're probably going to touch on elements of that to bring some historical uh, top-down dynamics to the, the conversation to your listeners. I'd say that's one thing that I really enjoyed about the way that you do things and the way you write is that it's not polarized to specifically like one opinion. You kind of state the facts uh, and kind of let people kind of figure things out for themselves rather than uh, doing that full fear campaign. Because obviously when you break it down, it's an intentional form of manipulation, kind of like you were saying, where you're able to control the masses by dividing them. You see this through history repeatedly and assumably from your work. I'm sure that you have like hundreds of cases that you've probably found with this happening throughout time. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, I. When, when looking at history, I, I found that it's one of the most valuable bits of advice that I received many years ago was from a, somebody who was, who, was, who was pretty smart cookie and who mentioned that it, it, would be, it would be more valuable to try to look at history from the standpoint of what didn't happen rather than looking at what did happen. And that means both for the good and for the bad. Because, you know, we can imagine a world which is a lot worse than ours, Right. Like at, at, at many points, we, we take it for granted sometimes when you're when you're born into a world that has these various benefits, technologies. I'm literate. You know, I can expect to live provided certain great reset fanatics don't get their way as it stands. I could and you, you and I could both expect to live on average till about 81, 82 or so. We have running water, uh, electricity, you know, um, refrigeration, which keeps my meat from going bad full and full of bacteria as uh, unfortunately most of our ancestors 
our, our great, great grandparents and everybody before them for all of human history did not have any of these things. And even a century ago, you know, the average life expectancy that one could expect to live if you were born, let's say where I am near Montreal in Canada back in 1903 would have been maybe 44 years of age, maybe. You know, if you were a mother, you were expected, you were expecting to see about one out of four of your children die um, of various causes before the age of five, before 1890. Um, forget about bacteria and unkept food, right? Like, I mean, it's just there are so many things that we didn't have that were keeping people in a state. Illiteracy was huge, you know, you, and the further back you go, the higher the illiteracy per capita was. The, the, not that long ago either. The only job opportunities really out there, if you didn't want to be a feudal serf, was to be a mercenary in uh, Europe, let's say, you know, like where there was just constant warfare between the Crusades all the way up to like the 1648 Peace of Westphalia. It was just constant war, Protestants versus Catholics, everybody versus the Arabs during crusading, you know, seasons. Um, it was just hell. So you could make money maybe being a mercenary, um, but that was really your only choice if you didn't want to be a landowner's property as a as a as a talking cow on a, <laughs> on a plantation um beyond that your choices were really minimal if you weren't born into a, a blue blood family you know one of the the higher upper crust uh lords or dukes which was like 99 percent of the people were not that so you know we take for granted that um there are these things that we have certain freedoms that we have i'm not in a gulag gulag right now which I could see if things had been had gone in a different direction, even in recent history, that would not be the case. So we, on the one hand, looking looking at where the oligarchy, and there is an oligarchy, and it's, it's valuable to start any approach in history by first recognizing the fact of oligarchism as a real continuous function of all of human civilization's known history, going back to ancient Egypt and before that. If you, if you don't start with that, you're not going to get very far. You might have like explanatory models that might sell books and might, you know, make people a professor at a university pretending that that's not a thing, <laughs> but it's, it's incompetent because it is a thing that that is a, a causal factor in world experience. Um, and the oligarchy doesn't really, it's not like they, they want that many things, you know, for all times in each generation, the representatives of that oligarchical parasite that has always been there, maybe occupying different geographical locations as a central command, but all, and maybe different names of people at you know who who represent different bloodlines at different generations. But the but the thing that they participate in might have, like I said, certain differentiations in space geographically and in, in the particular names. But what it ultimately wants is not that complex. It's ultimately absolute control of an, a model of, of society premised around master-slave social organization where the slaves don't get uppity. They don't have thoughts that are disruptive. They don't have desires that are disruptive. And that, unlike, you know, it, it's easy when you're, when, you're a, when you're a shepherd. Sheep don't. Sheep are just sheep, right? Their identities mm -hmm. will be sheep. So for shepherds, you know, occasionally a, a little sheep runs a, runs awry, and you got to, you know, chase it down, carry it back to the flock. But overall, you're generally not going to have to worry about the sheep organizing an, an armed rebellion or or developing a love of freedom or something like that. That that's not a, a concern for the shepherd. Whereas human beings um, are not sheep, though we can act like it voluntarily if we're given false ideas and a bestial identity. 
but we still have this other thing that's deeper tied to something fundamentally human, which the oligarchy denies exists, or they, they at least demand that it, it not exist in order for us to behave more like well-behaved sheep. So that's ultimately what they've always, the oligarchs have always wanted. And uh, sometimes they get closer to achieving those goals of sheepifying us. And when they do, it usually, usually involves certain things be done, like certain modes of organizing society around divide to conquer. You know, you can't let the people work together um, when they would be better off fighting each other to keep themselves too um, busy killing each other <laughs> and developing hostility with their neighbors instead of working together for common benefit against you, the master, you know, the, the, the Uber mention that wants to impose yourself onto them. You got to keep them. Um, if you can't stop them from developing literacy, what you can do at least is try to promote the stupidest forms of um, literature out there. That'll maybe, you know, give them a sense of, uh, of, uh, of reading, but not actually having any substance or, or reading garbage. So we could feed our, our bodies junk food, but we could also feed our souls junk food by, you know, engaging in shit ideas. I mean, you see that all over the internet with the aspect of like, you can use the internet to learn everything that you could possibly imagine at the tips of your fingers, or you can use it on the other side where you're just watching meaningless, pointless videos, a bunch of articles uh, created by AI generators. Um, so like th there's a split in that, that of course, it's something that they couldn't hold back forever, just kind of like you were saying with literacy. So they have to try to deter what you're able to do, where they make the average thing to do on the internet to be watching seven second videos continuously. And they push away the ideas of like people reading articles. And if people do read articles, they intentionally try to push these like, oh, the top 10 scariest things somebody's ever seen. Or they just do all of this like fear porn type stuff, or they do all this stuff that just drags you in that has no substance to it. But it sounds like it's going to be something life changing if you read this article. And that deters you away from all of the solid stuff and any of the actual like solid articles that they put out. They intentionally try to fill them with as many big words as possible. Um, they try to just try to make it as confusing as possible for the average person to read so that they aren't actually aware of what's going on in their world. But yet they have to, they're still putting it right in front of you, but they just deter you away from it. Like you see this constantly where they'll take a simple concept and then they'll cloud it with the biggest words they possibly can to try to make it as confusing and as boring as possible for the average person so they can't follow it even if they are telling you exactly what they're doing yeah that's well said and you know like the um <clears throat> the banality of it all eh? it's like the, the there's this natural flame which wants to be lit inside of all of us this hunger for seeking wisdom and the pleasures that go with the, the search, the hunt for wisdom, the acquisition of wisdom of, of discoveries and the sharing to other minds um, of that experience. That's like a fundamentally really human thing to do. And when you start getting the taste for it, it's hard to turn that off. And uh, there's a lot of effort that's been put into exploring ways to disrupt that fire and turn it inside out, basically just dampen it by giving people the false experience. Like I, I remember when I was, uh, when I was still in, in Normie land, um, some years ago, there was a book by this guy, Bill Bryson, who's an entertainment writer. And he wrote a book called, uh, a short history of nearly everything. And I was working at this pompous bookstore in downtown Montreal. And it was like a bestseller list. And I was feeling kind of stupid. I didn't really have too many thoughts. I didn't, I was not part of the book learning culture so much, you know? So I, <laughs> I was like, I'm starting to feel like I need to try to figure out some things. And, and I picked up this book and I read it 
And it's one of these books that kind of, it's entertaining. And it cites a lot of standard um, ex- explanations, simplifying a bubble, a, like a bubblegum version of, of, you know, modern scientific opinions from experts from a variety of fields, anthropology, quantum mechanics, and everything else. And it's truthful in that sense. Like they, he was doing a good job at popularizing, you know, scientific, sociological, popular concepts held by experts. And uh, I read it and I started feeling like I had knowledge because I read this stupid book and I was, you know, sounding smarter at parties. I was, I was, but I remember arguing with somebody who was a much more open-minded friend of mine. This is maybe 2002 or so. And I feel kind of bad in hindsight. And my friend was trying to get across how little we know of the universe and uh, how much there is to discover. And I was like, no, mathematics has proven everything. It's just a matter of like ironing out some details, but mathematics has proven how the entire universe works. We know about the Big Bang 13.7 billion years ago. We know about, you know, the nature of the expansion, you know, expansion of the universe. We know when it's going to end in a heat death in about, you know, two trillion years based upon the the ratios of velocity, velocities, you know, uh, that we could deduce from the redshift of different planets using the Doppler effect, or not planets, different uh, um, galaxies, right, that have different degrees of redshift. And so we can deduce that that's the Doppler effect that causes a certain velocity moving away from us. And thus we can conclude, blah, 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 that the universe will ultimately be in a big heat death at some point that's calculable by math. And so there's nothing really to discover, you stupid. And I was like actually berating this person. And in hindsight, I feel terrible. I feel so terrible that I did that. Like I was act, and I was I, I was in a in a in a party, and people were actually, I was um, persuaded. I remember people around me were being persuaded by my argumentation because I read this stupid book. Now, in hindsight, I mean, I wish I could go back in time with a time machine and slap myself in the back of the head because that book was full of like just popular crap that that was imposing interpretations of science onto people that were full of a lot of blind assumptions that had never been proven or demonstrated to be true, but are just held by bodies of experts. Who are these experts, you know, who hold a consensus, whether it's how human beings are causing global warming or like, what, what is dark matter? They're saying, you know, like 99% of the world or the universe is made of this stuff called dark matter and dark energy, but nobody can ever see it or, or, or explore it by its own essence. Like what the hell kind of, what bullshit is that? That we're assuming that the entire universe, most of it is made up of something that is intrinsically not investigatable. Um, that's, that's, that's bunk. That means that we're, we're being lazy minded as hell. And we're just fudging. We're putting in artificial chimeras into mathematical models to justify the math rather than actually exploring it with an honest heart, the universe itself. And I'm like, well, in hindsight, I could, I, I have a better appreciation for how, people who, you know, we're producing more PhDs at a higher ratio, uh, a higher density than ever before in human history. There's more like higher education happening at this day and age in the transatlantic community than ever before. But the degree of stupidity witnessed by just looking, looking at the world right now, right? Where all of these experts being pumped out of these universities, going into administrative jobs in the civil service, in the military, into, into politics, into the corporate world, into banking, are driving the world to self-mutilating death. <laughs> and you're like, how could so many smart people who are literate, Unlike their great, 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 great grandparents who were probably not literate, have all of these opportunities. They're so wasting those opportunities. So there's something that is that is wearing the the mask of knowledge, but has none of the substance that we're taking into ourselves and putting and shaping our identities around, 
Like, yeah, Darwin's theory of evolution, right? Everyone knows Darwin's theory of, of evolution is the only scientific explanation for the evolution of species, including human beings, right? I mean, you got this intimidating bullshit. And it's like as if there was nothing else that could that could more reasonably explain how species come into being and disappear uh, to the point that we had single celled amoebas, you know, so a long time ago on the Earth's surface and nothing more complex than singular celled amoebas. And now we've got us, th- these complex creatures sitting in a world, communicating ideas over space and time through light. <laughs> right? Uh, like, holy shit. How incredible is that? Um and 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 we're told no, it's all random selection, like random mutations for no mechanical cause, but randomness ultimately just like blah, 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 on a, on a on a deep you know genetic level, resulting in randomized mutations that help the more fit species destroy the weaker unfit species in a race of diminishing returns in a struggle for survival. Um, and that's it. That's what. So it's just basically randomized luck that resulted in single-celled amoebas going through that entire process of change within a universe that we're supposed to assume is ultimately governed by randomness of like you know atoms just randomly bopping about with no causal principle whatsoever beyond randomness. Everything's just a rolling of the dice, and that, and then it just so happens that there's us, and then you hear people like Yuval Harari, you know this this World Economic Forum. Uh, high priest this wannabe you know <laughs> pre- religion saying that up until like up until now there's been randomness that's all that that the humanity is uh all that the universe has given us is random and now for the first time he is saying this this jackass that uh we're now entering a world where natural selection will finally be present for the first time ever except it won't be the selection process of a god that's stupid It'll be the selection process of us, the CEOs here at Davos of Facebook and of Google, who will be determining the genetic selection of the of life going forward. And, you know, referring, of course, to integrating humans with machinery, the, the way Klaus Schwab talks about and these other transhumanists or making CRISPR babies out of test tubes, the way Aldous Huxley was laying out back in Brave New World. These are people are, are, are freaks. And this is how the Nazis were talking as well. This is exactly the philosophy of the, the Nazi ethos, if the Nazis had won, they had a whole black magic secret society brotherhood called the Thula Society with its whole Aryan mysticism uh, tied to eugenics, a British eugenics, not even German, but British eugenics um, ideology, which wanted to weed out humanity from the unfit and just create a world managed by over, over humans un, un, uber mention you know mm-hmm. and and that's exactly what we see in uh, in maybe a different costume acting like it's science acting like it's fact but it's it's none of that there there's a hot there's another set of much more human moral explanations for how all of these things from the from the redshifts of galaxies to the evolution of species to the appearance of human beings to the the growth of technologies for good or for bad there's a much more natural explanation, which is much more beautiful than anything we're being taught, which would awaken that wonder in children and that would maintain that sense of wonder into adulthood and beyond if it were not stifled by an oligarchical system, which has been holding on for thousands of years, not wanting to let go from the thing that it, it wants to control, which is humanity. So that's, yeah. 
I mean, going into like the whole education system, of course, that's kind of where they get their death grips in is, of course, they want they know kind of like you were saying that people are almost like lemmings. They're going to follow the person that seems like they know what's going on, the person that speaks the loudest in the room. So just like you were saying off of your conversation, uh, you're changing other people's opinions around you just by sounding like you knew what you were talking about. And when it comes to a lot of these like scientific like concepts, uh, people tend to forget the fact that there's the word theory at the end of them, like the black like black hole theory, um, even talking about like the theory of evolution. But when it comes to all of these people that are in control of all these things, they tend to drop that out and pretend like it's, it's fact that they know, know for a fact. So you end up having this generation of people where it's not that they're necessarily like, I don't want to say that they're not smart, but I feel like there's two different types of intelligence. There's the intelligence that's able to come up with things and understand concepts and create concepts on its own from the information that it has based around it. And then there's, these people that pretty much are just really good at remembering things. So when it comes to like these new age scientists, they seem to be the ones that have that creative mind where they're able to kind of build off their own concepts. And in turn, those people end up taking over the whole entire narrative for the entire concept of, of what mainstream science is because the rest of the people are essentially are those followers where they're really good at remembering the information, but they're not necessarily creating the information themselves. But if there's somebody, again, that's more intelligent than them, that's telling them these things, then they're going to follow them just like the lemmings. And it's a chain reaction that in turn, you end up having this new generation of people that are, they sound like they're really intelligent talking to the average person. So the average person is going to sit there and listen to them. But realistically, I know this sounds kind of weird, but they're almost like, I don't want to say the dumbest, but the dumbest of the smart people, but they're still the smartest of the average person. So in turn, everybody ends up following them just off of the basis of one, they have a PhD, one, they have paperwork that says everything. And they don't even take into consideration the fact that when you go into all of these public schooling systems, um, there's a lot more that goes with it. As in, if you start talking about French topics, uh, they don't want to be involved with you. So they're going to push you away from their institution. So a lot of these people nowadays that are coming up with their own concepts that are really starting to really discover things, they aren't coming from that background. They're coming from their own background that they've built up because again, coming back to the fact of the internet, you have all information at the tips of your fingers. You know, you can pay to go to a college class or you could sit here and if you're looking at the right things, you can essentially learn all of the same things. But the difference is you don't have that piece of paper. So the average person may not listen to what you have to say because they don't feel like you have something to back it up, even though you have the same basis of information go off of, but also in turn, because of that, and you're not also influenced by the institution that you came from, those are the people that are able to almost be more fringe and kind of really get out there with their concepts and the things that they're really trying to discover and talk about. Because again, they don't have anybody like holding them back from doing the things that they're intending to do. And again, that kind of goes into this whole other form of control where they're able to control the people that are the intelligent people and there's just all those, just those random little few flyby people that end up becoming, that end up doing essentially their own version of education. And then they're really able to dive into these topics and really be able to talk about them with the average person without having that, that backing behind them. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a very good point. And I, there was a, a, a really wonderful um, scientist by the name of Alan Savory. And he, uh, he did some incredible work on terraforming. Not that he's, I think he, just recently passed away i believe he was very old he might still be alive and there's a there's a good little youtube clip he, he's one of the key characters in the a, a recent documentary called the kiss the ground um demonstrating just how using certain nat very natural techniques could take what appears to be very dead desert regions and revive them 
um, you know, basic use of grazing techniques, a common, it's, it's a wonderful documentary and this guy's really smart. Anyway, he made a good point that the, uh, the discoveries that tend to revolutionize our knowledge in almost every, in, I, I think he actually says every field, um, of thought tends to occur from the periphery, rarely from within the field of experts themselves of whatever field we're talking about. And he gives the example of how the greatest candle makers of the 17th century, the greatest of them couldn't even conceive of the light bulb, but they had the, they had the monopoly over the knowledge of light making artificial light making. So it required somebody who wasn't contaminated by an expertise in wick making and wax manufacturing and the whole like, you know, candle world. It had to be somebody outside of that um, who would be able to have that higher concept that there's something to do with electricity um, that has some connection with the thing that we see on rainy dark days when there's lightning that we can replicate, we can reproduce in the form of static and other forms of electricity that could then be harnessed um, to to create a very controlled effect, um, which normally, I mean, if you think about it, light is very important um, in in terms of the, the 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 differentiation of human beings from other forms of higher apes. One of the only things that we have, you know, like is it, biologically we're not that different from many forms of gorillas and and orangutans. You know, DNA wise, a lot of similarity. Physiologically speaking, a lot of similarity. But if you're a materialist, you would be very hard-pressed to say how we are not simply some variant of a monkey, except when you're breaking free of the materialist sort of filter, you could see that other, these other animals will run away from fire. If fire comes into the environment of one of these, these monkeys, any of these monkeys, their instinct will be to run away same thing for wolves, same thing for other, almost, any, I think any form of, of um, mammal, except for humans, will run away from fire. We alone will find our curiosity provoked and will be able to harness fire. Um, and not only fire, but over time, if we're using our minds correctly, we could detect that, oh, okay, we're cutting down a lot of trees. You know, maybe we should try to find another way of, of creating fire than simply wood burning. So, you know, more recently, some of that involved developing certain things like, like coke and coal, which provided a lot more heat energy out of the same amount of volume. So you take like, you know, one volume of coal in that same volume of wood, and you will find that the coal will burn at a higher efficiency at longer, greater heat quality, and you will use less of it, but greater, get a higher quality of heat uh, output, which when applied to do work, will get you a lot further. You could get a lot more output from that same, from the same amount of input when you move to that higher energy source or, you know, oil even more so. So that same quantity of oil volume wise versus coal will be able to provide more heat at a higher quality of heat for longer than the coal would. And it's like that on and on and on um, to the degree that you're flexible enough to be open for both encouraging new creative discoveries that would have a twofold effect. Number one, it would do the good things I just said, but number two, it would invoke hostility from those experts in whatever field, both economically who have monopolized the trees or the, or the coal deposits who don't want to lose their economic advantage over the, over the system that they wish to, to thrive in. Right. And the whole um, academic world that has built up 
a system of experts who theorize about each of the states of scientific knowledge, each one being different um, as you as you progress. At each point, there's an incrustation, an over-adaption of people who have made their careers out of the, the knowledge that we had had at one limited moment and who will go out of their way, sometimes subconsciously, many times consciously, to destroy, destroy and subvert creative discoverers who think outside the box. They'll, to the point that we have many examples of great scientists being assassinated. Sometimes they're, you know, they're not assassinated, but they're, they're mocked, ridiculed. And, um, you know, there's that, that thing that I was doing at the party where I was not a professional in anything though. So it, the, the, the amount of damage that I did was relatively minimal, but it's the same principle in, in application as, as what you see with actual academics who will ridicule and mock anybody who's thinking outside of their, their structure, their molding. You um, saw this recently yeah. with all the COVID stuff that any doctor that was talking about a different method other than the vaccine, what happened to them? They instantly got pushed down and those ideas were never entertained as being a possibility. And I mean, coming from somebody that's a doctor, of course you want to have multiple different avenues to get to the same to the same same point. Like why would they intentionally push one narrative of only having one means of getting to it? Like part of science and part of just dis- part of all of it is, is discovery. So of course, if there's 20 different methods to get to the same point, you want to discover all 20 of those methods. You're not just going to say, here's one good enough. All the others don't exist. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like that's the true, honest, open human spirit. You just, you just exhibited. And I think any society, which, you know, there's this idea of, of being morally fit to survive. Um, in the Darwinian system, there's just, the, the idea of the fitness to survive concept is limited to the material expression of the moment. My ability to just beat out the weaker, beat out anything which disrupts my my comfort, my my dominant uh, position within a hierarchy. Um, <clears throat> but from from the standpoint of what you just pointed out and what we've been alluding to, the the true fitness in any type of human system. And we actually find this before humans were even on the present. We could see it even in YouTube videos. When you look at the synergy of, of animals, um, and there's, there's like, that's one good thing about YouTube too, right? Is in the internet is that it shows you all of these examples that Darwinian radical Darwinians cannot explain in any reasonable manner of like diverse species, which are normally predator prey, like tigers and baby piglets or, or lions and, uh, antelope, baby antelope who have these synergistic experiences where like a mother mammal will tend to um, often adopt another species of creature and treat it as if it were its own, which runs contrary to all of the supposed instincts that a Darwinian would assume about, you know, wanting to feed your, like feed, you know, spread your particular race over the weaker None of that is explic- is explicable or the, the, the amazing synergy of different species like these birds that just have developed relationships with species of, of alligators that they just like pick and eat the, the, the garbage off the teeth of the alligator and the alligator doesn't eat the bird because they've developed like the synergy over many generations. And it's like that it would be so easy for the alligator to close its mouth and eat the bird. Um, there's so many things like that which are which indicates some sense of harmony of cooperation Im- embedded within nature when nature can be brutal no doubt but there is this other thing too and with human beings if we are morally fit to survive it's not just material but it's also moral fitness which is i think even more important than the material component and that's 
to the degree that we're encouraging people to want to, to, to uh, lean into the unknown, you know, like look where the boundary conditions are of human knowledge and lean into it, go into the uncomfortable regions with the faith that you know that you will have the power within you to make a discovery by encouraging that childlike flexibility, that awe, that sense of wonder, that lack of arrogance, that, that thinks that I know all of the answers already. So what, what new was there for me to discover that, that, that type of arrogant pride really is the death knell to, to new, new discoveries. If, and if you look at the writings of people like Benjamin Franklin or, uh, or Max Planck or Madame Curie, look at their writings or, or Dmitry Mendeleev. These, these are, these are really amazing scientists who made revolutionary discoveries and they're super playful. Like they don't have this arrogant, like stick up your ass, you know, um, pompousness. They're all like really beings who are adults, but they're, they held on to that childlike spirit of wonder and play, but tied to a matured sense of reasoning skills as well. Right. They've got, they've got the, the, the both working for them and the, the outcome of their lives having been lived is super productive on so many levels and, and changing not only of, of their worlds that they live in, but all time, like all generations to come after. And they had a faith in that. So to the degree that we could tap into that, which also requires that we, that we rediscover our, our inner child, you know, like Jesus said to his disciples, you know, who's going to make it into, into heaven. And, and Jesus said, you know, it's, it's the children, children will make it into the kingdom of heaven. And, and so you should be like kids that did he mean that they should just wipe their, their, their minds clean of all of the, the adult knowledge they had? No, he didn't mean that. He just mean they have to have the, the, the hearts and spirit of innocence, um, you know, and, and, and then you will be able to, to tap into the source. And I, I think to, to the degree that people do that, which means, you know, use the internet, you use it like a tool. Don't, don't get sucked into that realm of, cause the internet has tons of things to just like waste your time to try to use it in a way that minimizes the time wasting function and maximizes the learning part of things and read books, you know, like take the time to read an article, read a book, you know, turn off. And, uh, and that's something which is so important as well. That people talk, and including myself, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm on Telegram on some social media, and I can, I, I can feel myself at times getting sucked into unnecessary hours wasted just scrolling, looking for the next, you know, little uh, endorphin rush, <laughs> uh, chemical, yeah, endorphin hit of something interesting and fun. Um, that's something we have to be just self aware of. You know, it's, it's, we're never going to achieve perfection or become angels, but we could definitely increase our potential. Um, by using our time well. And, and for that sense, I think ben, ben Franklin is one of the greatest role models that people could follow if they just read his original works, which are available, but there's been a lot of like, they're available, but you have to really look for them because there's been not a lot of reprinting of them over the past 70, 80 years. But like his autobiography, it's wonderful. It's tiny, it's inspiring, and it's teaching you how to, or how to develop a relationship with your senses, with your time, with your sense of identity. And the fact that this guy is, again, like not just the guy who organized the founding fathers of the United States to, to create a new type of system of government that had never existed before. But he's also the guy who discovered like, like the nature of electricity, which none of the European, um, you know, university educated scientists of the day. This guy had a grade two education living with bears in Philadelphia and shit. And he was able to trump and do something that no one could do across all of the academies of Europe. And it was done 20 years before the American Revolution, but it was tied in his mind always to the type of uh, revolutionary new type of changes in human society centered around natural law, which he understood with many others, 
were tied to the the moral law, not just the scientific law detached from morality. There were two sides of the same thing. And today, I think just the fact that we have been we've permitted ourselves to be organized under oligarchical systems for so many generations now, especially since World War II, that wall has been put between the moral world, which is like the world of, of subjectivity, of emotions, the aesthetics, you know, senses of beauty, of ugliness, um, the, the moral world where we judge right and wrong and values like that. And, and that's been so dichotomized from the so-called objective scientific world where emotions play no role and everything is just, you know, cold, utilitarian rules of nature with which themselves don't actually have any reason it's just randomness ultimately um it it, it drives people insane and mm-hmm. so i think to that extent it makes people who like we we're saying those who go into higher education and come out with a with a phd and become a you know whatever um they're they're trained to be a form of stupid it's a smart stupid it's a very specific type of of stupid which is the worst kind because it, it 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 is so shaped by a sense of false knowledge. It's whereas like regular Joes, you know, regular working blue collar people have a lot more access to basic common sense than many of those who are victimized by higher education in that sense, which you could see in things like the Freedom Convoy in Canada, which I was, you know, I was a part of. I, I got to work and, and talk to a lot of those people. And and were it not for the farmers the blue collar, the truckers, the blue collar people who just basically have access to human common sense. They love their families, their communities. You know, they, they, they're not too contaminated by a bunch of, uh, ivory tower theories. They're, they're like, they could see what's wrong, where, why they, they, a future is being artificially taken away from them. They could recognize the nature of a conspiracy to destroy them. And they were able to organize pretty well last year, um, in the display where millions of people were able to, change the the technocratic response by the canadian government which wasn't it, it it lacked leadership it lacked a martin luther king for example so it was disrupted and it was you know i don't know what form this sort of thing is going to take again but um but it wasn't it w- wasn't because of any of the intellectual class of experts that that was made possible that couldn't have been made possible that way ideally you want to have the best of both worlds though I mean, I think it's one of those things, too, where it's a form of control that's based off of like a reward or a pat on the back type of system where Mm. as you start climbing up this ladder, be it the educational ladder or the corporate ladder, you get more and more pats on the back, more and more reward for being that cutthroat person, being the survival of the fittest type of concept, when clearly that doesn't necessarily work in nature like a lot of people have theorized. And then when you start breaking it down to its key components and realize that the people who are at the bottom of the chain who aren't wanting to climb that ladder to step on somebody else to keep progressing themselves up higher they have this better idea of community and rational thinking because they're not being manipulated by this concept of reward for doing something uh, instead they're thinking of it from the aspect of trying to progress everybody as a whole that's why you see that a lot of like the most poor people are always the most giving and the people who are the people who have the most money are usually the least giving it's because they have this concept where it's instilled as you climb up that ladder that you're the best you're the survival the fittest nobody else is as good as you so you're going to step on everybody in 
in, in the process of doing that. And in our modern day system, it's definitely rewarded. Like you look at like a, like a businessman, like he's like one of like the best, best of the best. But realistically, the only reason he got there is because he was willing to be a cutthroat person and shit on everybody along the way to get to that point. And we look at it like a, like it's a good thing, but if you really break it down to its key components, it's not a good thing. And the intention of it is like you were kind of saying earlier in the show, it's a form of splitting people in order to control them. Cause it's way easier to control a bunch of people that have conflicting ideas than it is if everybody got on the same page and had the same idea and actually realized this game that's being played, but everybody's too caught up in this rat race of again, getting rewarded constantly that they've, they lose track on morals and like what you should actually be doing as a person. And in turn, even just with status, um, you know, if somebody's like in like the, uh, the educational system and they have some type of paperwork, some type of status that says that they're qualified to be saying this information according by, according to, you know, whoever the hell wrote the paper out, they don't want to listen to somebody who has possibly even better, more logical, more moral ideas who doesn't have that paperwork because they, they feel like they're above them. Because again, it's it's a reward system and in turn it ends up dividing people and causing a whole other form of control through it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, no, I mean, I, mean I, I think what you've just said, again, it, it really resonates with me and I, the, the fact that we have a... Um, Anytime you have a differentiation of the self and like the self is always, it's an interesting thing with humans, right? Like animals tend to not have so much of a, of a developed sense of self of Inus the way humans do. Um, and that's very sacred that humans have the sense of the individual sacredness of individual liberty, the individual, uh, being something different from the other, from uh, those born who are not us, but we also have an ability through free will and through reason guided by morality uh, or conscience we can um we can do things that either enhances that separation um by finding modes of of being which which further differentiate us as being you know better than our neighbor better than the other um less inclined to empathize with them to put ourselves in their shoes and, and there's a, po- a scottish poet named robbie burn robert burns um around the time of the American Revolution who said, you know, the greatest gift that God had ever given us is to see ourselves as others see us. And that goes two ways, right? Like we can, we can both judge ourselves by putting ourselves into the positions of others who we might have transgressed upon and look upon ourselves from the other's eyes or even from our future self. That is not us, right? Our fu- we got a concept of the future self that we might want to be. And that's also something that, you know, people uh, who have been through uh, Alcoholics Anonymous or have just shed any type of addiction they've been dealing with the one of the the common things i've noticed in in reading books and talking to people that has worked has been the shifting of the mindset so that you're looking at yourself both from how other people are looking at you and also how you're looking at yourself in the future how is your future self judging your present self how are your future children judging your present actions right just the way that we can sometimes judge if we've been in a bad way in the past we can go back like i was saying if i could go in my time machine i'd slap myself in the the back of the head would the future self that I want to be go back in the time machine and slap my present self in the back of the head for anything that I happen to be doing right now. So we can, we can do this incredible thing by getting out of our skin and looking back upon ourselves from a variety of directions. And also I can feel, how does that person feel about anything? Um, and that, that sort of, I think that higher sense in, in the, you know, in, in Christian teachings, but you also see this in, in express itself in a, in a, in a, 
very uh, unique way also in the teachings of Confucianism and the Analects and Mencius. You see it also in some of the, the Bhagavad Gita and some of the, the elements of the stories conveyed within the Upanishads. There's, there's different cultural groups that are all sort of trying to make sense of how this works, being a human. And they, they wrap it up in their own ways, in their own cultural myths and stories. But one of the, the things we tend to get in the Christian ethos is, is the idea of agapic love, right? The, the, that an ancient Greek... Um, which was the the script used for the original New Testament, there's not one but three different differentiated words of love, whereas the English language is, is a very simplistic language and we only use one word for love to mean a lot of things that are not the same thing. And, you know, you have you have on the one hand, you have eros um, for the, the basic, you know, mater- like the, the sensual love between a man and a woman. Or, or other, if that's your, you know, the, the way somebody might want to roll. But the point is, you got the eros love, the erotic at the at the heart of the word erotic. You have the filial, the brotherly love, you know, for for family, for friends, for brotherhood. But then you have a higher agapic love as well, the agape being the 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 highest uh, spiritual form of of love that asks for nothing in return, but that just gives, and that's tied to something to do with all of humanity, the soul, the health of the soul. Um, <clears throat> so. To the degree that I think that we that we build that spiritual muscle of empathizing with others, um, as well as seeing ourselves and mod- choosing th- those those courses of action which bring out the best within ourselves by by looking at ourselves from the from different points of view, um, we we awaken that sense of love, which again is tied to a love of, of creation because we're part of creation. Right, like we we ourselves are born into the universe. We're part of the universe. We can discover the universe, where the, as other animal animals don't really discover the universe. They just they're they're good being what they are. The bees will make beehives, and that's cool. It's delicious, delicious product. Um, they'll they'll use hexagonal structures in the geometry of the beehive. You know, the, but they're not studying in university the geometry to make their their hexagonal beehive structures they're not doing that they're just it's it's wired into them which is cool that's great whereas human beings can go a little bit further and we can contemplate the causal nature of the of the hexagon and of the 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 platonic solids the archimedean solids we can look at ratios right and out of which arise mathematical um integrals ratios that that occur when you look at you know a, a square to a triangle a four to a three we can look at a heck at, at the construction of a pentagon and the five the five folded symmetries that arise in a pentagon or the the six folded symmetries that arise in a in a in a snowflake or or um a pomegranate you know when you cut a pomegranate or, or a beehive and we can see that there that there are these things imprinted within nature we can uniquely discover certain mathematical ways of expressing these things and using that formal structure that we can build up to discover constants like the Pythagorean theorem, you know, we can, we can discover these constants which are always work. They always work. As long as you have any case of like a a right angle triangle, no matter what infinite possible choice, the Pythagorean theorem that was discovered, obviously I I assume by Pythagoras (laughs) 2000 plus years ago, it's going to hold true that the, the, you know, the added areas of the square of the, the two smaller sides will add up to the, the, the square of the hypotenuse area. That'll always be true. And it's useful when you apply it to build things. It's useful when you, when you want to figure things out in map making, in navigation, in uh, celestial astronomies. So we, we have this reciprocal relationship between like this metaphysical space that is not necessarily the brain, though it needs a physical brain to express itself. But to say that, 
the ideas that we discover, like Pyth- the Pythagorean theorem or anything else, it, it, it's not physically the brain that does that because a lot of brains don't do stuff like that. They don't discover. They, you know, there, there are certain brains that use the same information. Two people can, can have the same information data-wise coming into their senses, but only one of the two has the love of knowledge that they cultivated, the love, not just you know, the, the appearance of the knowledge, but the love of knowledge, not just memorizing, but, the, but seeking out, that they will use that information to leap into the unknown and generate a solution concept. And both of them have equivalent brains. The other person could have used their brain to make that discovery, but they didn't use the brain tool very well. So they didn't make that effect. So there's something about the the spiritual, metaphysical, and the material world that have this reciprocal uh, back and forth. And I think that the oligarchy has spent a long time wasting their time or not using their time well by figuring out kind of how that works, but for the wrong reasons, only, only in order to get a better sense of how do you disrupt that. And there's a science of corrupting the minds and morals of people. And you, you mentioned before the example of behaviorism, of, 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 of crystallizing the, on the one hand, rewarding people to become the worst part of themselves that they could possibly be <laughs> and punishing them when they try to be a better person. Um, standing up, you know, for your conscience as a doctor, all of a sudden you find that you can't feed your family because you're, you're, you're having your license, your medical license revoked. And now all of a sudden, just try by trying to like save lives and be a good person and honor your conscience, your life is being destroyed. Or, you know, there's so many cases of professors who couldn't stand having to teach kids that they're, they're, they're a parasite on nature, on Gaia, destroying everything because of carbon dioxide. And they've told the truth that actually, Actual climate science demonstrates that human beings are not causing anything like global warming. And by doing that, there's so many cases of these of these courageous people who have been who have had their careers annihilated. Um, so, I mean, hats off to them. But but so the oligarchy works at, at giving us and 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 uh, expanding, amplifying the worst part of our elitist selves that cuts off our ability to feel what others feel. And you see this in like the the lifestyles of people like Prince Philip, Prince or now King Charles the Third, or any of that blue blooded. Uh, they call themselves the Blue Bloods because you know, the, the, or they don't call themselves that, but that's the name that was that was developed over the years because they just don't like doing manual work and they don't have skills. Like the, the people born into the hereditary, um, you know, lords and barons of the of this family, that family, von this, Lord that, Charles. Uh, blah blah blah. They don't actually have useful real world skills to do anything. So they're they're living in a world of self of boredom on the one hand. Um, they're they're kind of themselves victims of their own family um, traditions that they're born into. They're they they they're the heirs of giant property rights, castles, um, uh, fondies, fu- family funds, trust trusts managed by oftentimes you know, occult secret societies that are themselves self-organizing um, structures, which have very satanic um, cultural pro- pro- uh, proclivities, which groom their, their young, right? So these, these the poor friggin' kids born into these families, they might have a lot of material wealth being born into manors and mansions and, and have access to an Ivy League education, but poor them. And I feel, I feel bad for a lot of these kids because they didn't have a fucking chance. 
you know, they're being groomed, being broken early on. And there's a whole structure of, um, of abuse that they're, that they're, that they're brought into in, in Eton college and, you know, in Cambridge to become a Cambridge apostle. It means that something human has been broken within you early on before you can become a Cambridge apostle and that, and thus get access to becoming one of the, the creative class of overlords or managerial overlords who will, who will manage the system in the next generation. It, it's, it's really destructive. Um, and, and they, and they encourage it all the way down to the point that you have like Prince Bernhard, you know, this former Nazi SS officer creating with Prince Philip, things like the world wildlife fund for nature, you know, working with, with the eugenics, um, loving Sir Julian Huxley, who creates UNESCO to promote, as he says in his own words, a love of one world government amongst the baby boomer generation being born after World War II and an acceptance of, of a new form of eugenics with a new name, which he says as early as 1946. And at the same time as he's doing that, he's, he's the president of the Eugenics Society of Britain working with Prince Bernhard, other un, unreconstructed Nazis who are being brought into NATO organizing you know the entire cold war being integrated into our our intelligence agencies overseeing the murders of people like john f kennedy bobby kennedy martin luther king enrico Mattei, charles de gaulle trying to kill him like 30 times you know you got this whole thing going on over the cold war this is before you and i were even born and then you know coming online setting up the world wildlife fund together all three of these these assholes saying that uh you know we're gonna change the ethos from being protect human beings from empires to protect nature from human beings. That's the new ethos that they want to bring into being, you know, these guys like Prince Bernhard, Prince Philip, Prince Bernhard goes on to do what he, he goes in bankrolls, not just the, the Bilderberger groups that he sets up in 1954 to organize a new reconstruction of what they failed to achieve in the forties, which was a world government under a fascist, you know, managed system of strongmen that would enforce a banker's dictatorship onto different sections of the of, of a depopulated uh, global slave class that, that didn't work out in the 1940s for I mean I, I wrote a whole book on that but they tried to redo that and one of the things that the Bilderberger group involved was creating a junior organizing committee in the form of the World Economic Forum which Prince Bernhard directly bankrolled the biggest event of the that unveiled the Davos Manifesto in 1973 that brought the Club of Rome in, integrated into the Davos World Economic Forum um, control system that brought this stuff into China in the in the late seventies. China had their own battle against this throughout the last forty years. They they did the same thing in Russia in the nineteen nineties. Russia's had their own battle against this thing ever since. We unfortunately didn't have a battle against that. You know, the last people who really fought against this in a in a serious way were unfortunately Martin Luther King Jr. and Bobby Kennedy, and maybe to a certain degree, I think Trump was a disruptive, positive force in that process, and still is, despite um, you know the problems that one might detect around him. Maybe Bobby Kennedy Jr. could also be one of these more positive forces as well. But the U.S. by and large caved and allowed this fascist beast. To, uh, to run amok on every single level of our lives, Academ academically, culturally, science policy, medical, you name it, banking, military, obviously. So now we're, you know, the time has come where we have to deal with the consequence of that immorality. And we're at the end of a system. By the time this, this interview goes live to your public, to your audience, I don't know what the world's going to look like, but we're definitely at a breaking point where something systemically um, is very different from where it was for the past 50 years. We're, we're, we're entering a new, th we've entered a new threshold or past a threshold. And so think there's a big fight over what that new system is going to look like and whether it's going to be something which is, 
more virulent than anything even Hitler could have dreamed of or whether it's going to be something more human is, is up for grabs. I mean, you see this multiple times through history that when you're trying to usher in a new method of thinking, you separate the older generation from the previous generation. And it's like like polarization, like we were talking about earlier in the show, but rather than doing it between one group of people, like that's all appears, you're doing it between generations so that you can cut off, start off a gap right there, cut it off and then start your new method of thinking. And I mean, you, you go back to like Maoism when they're separating the youth from the parents to the point where they would start reporting their parents for having these old method of thinking. Uh, you go into like the Hitler's youth with the whole concept of, you know, they would basically give their parents away to the state if they had a different method of thinking. Uh, you're starting to see this now in America with the whole uh, like transgender movement and the whole like woke agenda, that it's splitting the generations between the older method of thinking and this new method of thinking because they tried to just throw a tailspin in it so hard that it's really, really hard for these two generations to relate. Like it's a it's a very solid gap. And in turn, by, by doing that, you're causing a split where you can essentially restart the method of thinking where the previous generation would actually think things out. They were more logical because they were doing more jobs working with their hands, where the new generation, it comes into this thing where it, it even goes into like the grasp for knowledge, where the older generation was a lot more in depth with their knowledge because they actually had to do the research to go out and find it. The new generation, all they have to do is just Google search something and they could find any answer, anything that they want right in front of them. And in turn, because of that, they don't have that need to seek information in the same method. They have just this instant, I ask a question, I get a response back. And because of that, people don't want to actually look into things anymore. So the previous generations, again, would look into why this is the way it is, where the new generation will just look something up, have an answer, and that's what it is. And because of that, it also ushers in a new form of control because, again, people aren't really doing like the backstory into anything. Um, they're not really getting any base of anything. And again, splitting these generations now it pushes it into this whole idea of like, you'll be happy and know nothing with the whole world economic form concept that this new generation is into the whole virtual reality thing. They're into everything being digital, everything not having a hard copy anymore where the previous generations, like even for me, like I'm a millennial and I'm one of those people that I need a hard copy of it. Otherwise I'm not going to pay for it. But they've ushered that in to the aspect now where even coming from like a corporate standpoint, how easy is it to make a million copies of something that's digital and be able to sell all of those things for $10 a piece versus actually having to produce and make all of these things? They're also making it so that they're able to make more money off of less time and less effort into doing something because they can just, if something's digital, you can copy it as many times as you want and it's no skin off your teeth and there's no more overhead product for it. And if you usher in this new generation and this new set method of thinking where they're not connected with the real world anymore, they're more connected with the digital world, then it's easier to usher in these concepts where you could eventually push the generations into a point where they would almost be willing to live their life virtually because why would they want to live in the real world where we actually have to do physical work and we have to do this and we have to do that when I could just spend my life in this digital system and live off the government and do anything that they say because if I don't do anything that they say, then they're going to cut me off from whatever source it is into the virtual reality, whatever it is. Even even the food concept, if we keep ushering things forward into the whole like AI thing, for example, where it may eliminate a lot of these like hands-on physical jobs, um, assumably there's going to be a lot less work. So in turn, you're going to start seeing things like a universal income. And as soon as something like a universal income exists, then you have full control over those people because if they don't do exactly what you say, then you can pull their pull their income and now they can't survive. It's, it's a really easy method to do. And they're, they're essentially making it so that people are willingly giving up who they are as a person and 
they're, they're, they they don't see any difference anymore. Like they, they, there's no fight because they don't see anything wrong because they've separated those generations. Like I was saying. Yeah, no, the, the oligarchy is always desired systems where of subjects, not citizens. And I'm in Canada, you know, and, and it's, it's difficult, especially for Canadians to appreciate the difference of those two words. Cause uh, to be a Canadian legally means you're a subject of the monarchy. The head of state of Canada is the monarch. The constitution is a constitution written, drafted in 1867, which posits that the rights that we have as subjects are given to us by a monarch, whoever that might be, because the crown is the emanation of all, all authority emanates from the institution of the crown. That's what maintains the continuity of the systems of empire is the crown apparatus. It's more than the individual happen to be sitting there at one time who is mortal. It's it's more than that, right? But it's called the fount of all honors. That's the technical term for the crown. And as such, it is presumed that the crown can give you your rights. That's where your legal rights come from. And that's where also your rights can be taken away from implicitly. So the crown can remove your rights if that is deemed so expedient by whoever happens to be managing the crown. Um, in America, in the United States, it's, it's a different – I shouldn't say America because Canada is America, but – in the United States, it's a different situation because there you have a different type of, of system of organization which posits that the authority for law is something which emanates from the consent of the governed and that rights are something inalienable caused by our equal existence as humans. By being human, there's something within us that gives us the sorts of rights that one would not find with sheep or chickens. Now, that is declared you know, self-evident by a rational person. However, the oligarchy is holding on to irrational, outdated, arcane customs, which don't presume reason to be existent. So they want people to be subjects, not a citizen means you have responsibility. Your freedoms that you, that you have also come with a responsibility to defend them, which is why you had people who died for the revolution. They, they died to keep the thing going, even though it was never perfect. It was never finalized. You know, there were still British traders and fifth columnists maintaining a slave society within America after the revolution was consolidated. It was never, and, and we're working always kind of like the way that the unreconstructed Nazis and Italian fascists and French fascists after world war two were never punished in Nuremberg, but kept working as what, what are known as fascist stay behinds, right. As part of the NATO secret army. That's that's sort of what happened after the British after the you know the the revolt against the British Empire. You you had things like Wall Street that were created in the 1790s by people like Aaron Burr, who was a, a devoted operative for Jeremy Bentham of the British Foreign Office and lived in Bentham's mansion for five years after he avoided getting arrested for being caught um, running a treason campaign in America in 1807. So this guy, Aaron Berg, goes from being vice president to nearing becoming governor of New York to, you know, trying three different times to uh, break up the United States and undo the Constitution, lives in Jeremy Bentham's manor, and then is redeployed back in the weeks before the War of 1812 against the British to reconstruct his political machine and try yet again to break up the, you know, divide to conquer. That's the way the British always work. And to do that by working the weak spots of the American psyche and and organizational system which was at that time the slave the slave problem how could you really mean it you know that all all men are created equal if you still do have a society based upon the idea of slavery it's a tough it's a tough paradox Mm -hmm. (laughs) so obviously things of america were able to work work that quite a bit and it's a bit of a a miracle 
that somebody qualified morally like a Lincoln and, and his network were able to gain power after two Whig presidents. Lincoln was from the Whig party, right? Um, but two Whig presidents who had attained the presidency, only there were only two ever, and both of them died. One in 1840, William Harrison, after three months, that Lincoln and Lincoln campaigned to get him in along with uh, John Quincy Adams. And he, had, you know, Harrison had a whole program to take on this fifth column uh, deep state inside of America. But again, he didn't live out that long to, find, to, to carry out that fight. And Zachary Taylor in uh, 1850, who died also about a, two, two and a half years after his presidency, after eating, as they say on the official books, too many, too many cherries and cold milk on a... <laughs> <laughs> on on a July fourth celebration, and he died, and uh, and that was it. That was the last Whig president. And then um, the 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 bet the best Whigs ended up organizing a new party, uh, an anti slave party called the Re the Republican Party in eighteen fifty six, out of which uh, young Lincoln was recruited. He'd already tested his mettle doing the battle to keep America to break America out of the uh, the Mexican War earlier on. But you always had this unresolved thing, right? And, uh, and Britain had their hands all over the Civil War uh, in, in ways that people would it, would, it would explode the mind to see how many ways the British worked it and worked the, their, their agents within America to, to break up the Union and, and essentially undo that system of government before it could spread. Because it was, it was spreading. And I mean, a lot of people were getting the idea based on the example of the United States that, hey, they could do this. If they could do this, why can't I do this? Why, why, why do I have to be under a hereditary system of monarchy as a subject when I can also have freedom? And so, you know, you had Haiti, the, the second country in the world to declare itself a republic with a constitution written with the help of Alexander Hamilton, worked to break off the, 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 the French um, slave owner system. And unfortunately, Haiti was never forgiven for that and was, you know, punished again and again for the last 250 years. Ironically, um, now where most of children get trafficked out of, it's like one of the highest countries as far as that goes. So now they're just taking their children. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. Shame on the Clinton campaign and, and Bill Gates. But it's um, it it. This is the thing. It's it's like there's this whole historic continuity, and to and to get that back to the point, the the only way one can be a citizen as opposed to a subject is to take responsibility, and to and and true freedom comes with responsibility. So. A subject is not expected to do anything but be a talking sheep, and a sheep is fed. It's uh, it, it you know it, its wool is a uh, is 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 groomed off it for this for the luxury needs of of the owners of the sheep, and when their population becomes too numerous to be accommodated by the the limited amount of food granted to them by the uh, by the the masters of the uh, the sheep, they will their excess population will be culled. And that's just the way everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. A farmers, you know, will organize lower forms of life. 
Um, I can't blame a farmer if they don't have the money to maintain the feedstock for, uh, for their cattle and they have to kill off a cattle. I mean, that's something human, you know, that, that a human farmer might have to do to his cattle, unfortunately at, at different times. But if you, if you get into the logic of saying, well, grandma's got to die because we don't have enough limited medical resources to keep her alive. So we got to give her a suicide pill or this, these babies, you know, are, uh, are, are not, <laughs> They're expensive if we if we have these premature babies to keep them alive, and they're not even paying into the system yet. There's no guarantee they're even going to live to pay into the system if they if they survive. So let's just eliminate them now. Um, there's all sorts of like cost accounting um, modes of logic which will bring you into fascism damn quickly if you apply the logic that we that is kind of okay or justifiable for car, old cars that are too expensive to maintain or or old cows. You got to take Betsy out sometimes if. At some point, if she's just too old, you know, not producing the milk, you know, it's too much of a, of a dead weight on the farm. Get I mean, something I was thinking about in the beginning of all of the COVID stuff is it seems to affect older people more than anybody. And my connection with that is you got to scrape the top off the system. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, you know, it's there. There there are um, seriously fucked up reports that have been done, cost accounting reports demonstrating that have been used by, by Ezekiel Emanuel, the Obama, you know, healthcare reformers that have been, that have come back with a vengeance under uh, Biden, which have looked at the fact that, you know, the last five years of our, of the average human life utilizes about 85% of the overall healthcare resources of that person's entire life. And so if we could just cut off the last five years, of people's lives, you could save, you know, something like $2 trillion, they say per, per year of, uh, of waste. And, um, and there's a variety of ways to do that. I think, yeah, COVID was one, one example of something that disproportionately struck the weak, the feeble, the elderly, and, and cut off a lot of that so-called waste of the useless eaters. A lot of um, the stuff with food too, causing cancer that pops up way later is it, it it's just like putting a, something in the savings bank, you know, like you want people to work now when they're young and that's when they're eating all of this food that's genetically modified and awful for you. But because you're eating all of this food, when you start getting to that point where they don't, you're going to be living off the system. Now that's when all the cancer kicks in. Yeah. I mean, I think about this stuff too. And you know, I don't want to, I don't even know how to think about, I don't know if anybody that I know really knows how to think about the electromagnetic environment that we're all swimming in, which back in the nineties, it was nothing like this. I didn't have a cell phone until 2005. You know, and, and so we're sort of a guinea pig generation in that sense, swimming in an electromagnetic environment with, you know, I'm, 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 I'm on my phone all the time, you know, by matter of just what I have to do for work. I'm always being forced to use this, my, my, my multiple laptops, you know, we're, we're all swimming. Who knows what type of like longer term, it's been like what, 20 years that we, we've had this sort of environment. Even Bluetooth, um, bro. People are putting that thing right in your ears and you have something that's on either side of your heads that, that that's creating a signal and it's connecting down to your phone and you, you'll keep that in your ears for eight hours a day. Yeah, exactly. These are microwaves moving through you and like, you know, maybe in the, in the momentary short term, I, that may not have as a a hugely dramatic effect, but what's it going to be in 10 years? What about 20 years? I mean, this is all brand new. My wife just bought a new computer. It, the, the computer doesn't have a port for even the old conventional headsets with a little like, you know, physical, uh, thing you you plug in it doesn't have you, you only you can only use the bluetooth for the new computers that they're making or the new phones that she just she just got a, a new uh, iphone too there's no port for for just putting in a, a an old headset even on uh, some new laptops there's not even an ethernet port that's only strictly wi-fi like they're even starting to push away from actually like a hard wire in unless you have a specific type of laptop or a desktop 
exactly. So, I mean, you know, there's a whole bunch of things that, um, here's the interesting theory though. Like, cause I, I'm not, I'm not into just looking at the negative. Obviously it's always going to be balanced with the positive. And I mean, you know, the way I look at things like GMO tech or, um, um, these types of, of electromagnetic, you know, information tech, telecommunication technologies is that is it, is it the technology itself is the em fields is it the is it the gmo tech itself which is disruptive or bad for you i would say no not intrinsically because i could imagine if you had a, a healthy moral society that is organized the way you know this whole discourse between you and i has been i've been touching on if you have like a healthy well-organized society that values life the sacredness of life then the application of everything done within that society would have would be infused with that respect for rights and life in general. So thus you could imagine like, you know, I could imagine a tomato, which would be like GMO perhaps. So it could withstand temperatures. It could withstand like, you know, you got the golden rice and other forms of rice that's been GMO made under the green revolution that saved probably 400 million people's lives, which can withstand all sorts of typhoons, droughts. So people don't have to suffer from vacillating um, famines, uh, caused by weather fluctuations. But in the same time, the type of tomatoes you get at the grocery store today that are GMO tend to be like, they look red for a long time. They kind of never go bad, but there's no real vitamin richness in them. And God knows what other kind of negative effects are going to hit us. Whereas I could imagine a society where you have like a tomato, which is, has 10 times more vitamin richness than your average, like natural born tomato. I can imagine that. I don't know if anybody's ever done it because we've been valuing profit over people for a long time. So they just want to extract, um, consumerism instead of actual quality or like, you know, laptops and cell phones that are manufactured with a, a sensitivity to the, 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 the resonance frequencies emitted by a natural human being. Cause we all as living beings emit magnetic field, right? All of us do. We're, mag we're, we're magnetic creatures living on a, on an electric circuit within the solar system. And the earth is a, is a very magnetic, um, I mean, it's, it's, we're, we're, we're swimming in it, right? In, in a natural way without, without electronic technologies. So if we, if you actually had scientists and, and people working in the field of technology who are manufacturing their devices with a sensitivity to the resonance frequencies of those magnetic fields, such that it would amplify and even harmonize, or maybe even make people healthier by using the technology. Um, that's something I could also, I, I've seen no scientific reason to say that that could not be so. It's just that again, we're in a world that is run by sociopathic death cultists <laughs> that, that doesn't want any of those things to happen. So uh, <laughs> the opposite tends to be the case. And, and, but, but I say this just because I know a lot of people, especially uh, younger, younger guys and, and, and gals out there who've just lived in a lot of hypocrisy tend to become very blackpilled and they see the destructive effects of government, of technology, and they will tend to go all like pro Amish, you know, like just, and they'll become like anti-technology to a radical and I would say even dangerous way. That's another symptom of living under this rotting behemoth of glo of globalization and the, the, the destructiveness of capitalism, which has just done so much damage to everything. And, and so people will then become like the op they'll, they'll become radicalized or polarized as I, as I was saying at the very beginning of our show, they'll become radicalized to the opposite reactionary tendency and they will become like eco-terrorists as we see like who's, who's, who's actually causing a lot of the, the pipelines blowing up. No, I'm not talking about Germany's Nord Stream. That, that's obviously the, the American military, but I'm talking here <laughs> about like, 
all of the cases of of like food processing facilities going up in smoke, you know, trains carrying toxic uh, chemicals derailing, um, transistors and hydroelectric dams being sabotaged. Like there's a huge spike in all of these things going on, obviously protected by high level operatives within the intelligence community who know that this is happening. But this is there there is a giant wave of young disenfranchised nihilistic youth who have been like radicalized and are organized um to become eco-terrorists in a way that they think is the only moral thing for them to do to obey their conscience in a hypocritical world right that that's that all they can see is the hypocrisy um they're recruited into operations funded by things like george soros they're organized by things that are that are run by like the 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 deep green resistance or extinction rebellion idolizing like you know Jane Goodall or or Greta or, or other little you know like role models that they're aspiring to to walk in the footsteps of and then they're like deployed um, as useful idiots to go and like blow up something or light you know food processing facility on fire in a way to like you know save nature from the the villainous pox of human civilization because. It's technology itself, industrial technology that they blame. And that's uh, that's something we also have to f- figure out. So that's why I, I usually try to introduce, whenever I say something that acknowledges the the, the destructiveness of technology, I, I usually try to balance it out with, well, what about <laughs> the possible applications of it too, just to, you know, moderate people who might be watching and are like inclined to go black pill. I mean, I definitely agree with you there. One thing that I... As far as like the whole movement, as far as everything going eco-friendly, going green, it's it's it was like a weird transition where you saw all the like fringe culture, like hippie type people, where they were all about protecting the environment, keeping everything as natural as possible. Then and all the corporations in the process of this, because it all came about to money, were trying to push against it because they were again trying to be able to just dump things in the cheapest way possible, just trying to profit off of it. So now it's been a switch where now they're finding ways to be able to profit off of people caring about the environment, which again is almost like exploiting like a weakness. And what do you get now? You're getting like carbon taxes, things like that, where essentially they just found a way to be able to flip so that they could profit off of the other side because now they see that there's an opportunity for money to be made. And even in turn with the process of that, um, you see all of these things where they're trying to upgrade everybody to new types of technology that are greener technology, that are this, that are that. They want everybody to have cars that, you know, aren't using uh, oil by 2035 or whatever. And again, that's a whole other push as far as corporations go that now they it's more means for them to make money because now they're telling everybody they need this if they care about the environment. And in turn, everybody's dumping the old things that they had and buying these new things because they're good for the environment. So again, it's, it all comes back to money. They follow wherever the money's at. If people are caring about the environment, they're going to go to push towards things that care about the environment. But in the process of it, because it's something that's eco-friendly, now it's twice as expensive because because we have to make it a different way that's good for the environment. It's it's all a ploy, man. Like it's been a ploy since the beginning. And then you see these figures yeah. that come out and talk about, you know, we need to do this for the environment. We need to do that for the environment. And it, it's it's just putting a figurehead on it so that people have somebody to look up to. Because like we're talked about multiple times in this conversation, people will look up and follow whoever's the loudest speaker in the room or the one that sounds the most confident about what they're talking about. And if people are talking about this, this is what we need to do to fix the environment to be better. The average person isn't going to again go back and do their own research on what's actually good, how things have changed through time. They're just going to follow that because that's the common goal is everything needs to be eco-friendly now and they don't look into the background of 
is it really eco-friendly? Like even the battery stuff, like you start looking into all of these mines and all these places that get destroyed in terms of trying to find lithium and get different components for the batteries. And it's just as destructive as before. The only difference is now it has a green label slapped on it. Or you see these construction sites, they'll switch over to uh, using all electric power, electric tools, electric machinery, but yet they're still using a generator to charge those things. So like it's, it's idiocracy at its finest. It's hypocrisy, like you were saying. Yeah, it's exactly the same thing as Idiocracy, the the film by Mike Judge. It's the same thing where instead of, you know, by the by the 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 punchline in the film is, you know, he realizes that 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 society that he was like cryogenically unfrozen out of like 500 or whatever 800 years into the future, he has been using Gatorade because the Gatorade company somehow took control of government somewhere along the way and convinced everybody that instead of using water, which is bad for your health, you should use Gatorade for everything including farming. And he's like, well, why don't we just start stop using Gatorade on our farms to 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 deal with the the massive famine which is like threatening humanity? And nobody thought of that. And uh, it really is very similar to the the sort of quality of logic right now with people saying, yeah, let's just save nature by all you know going into electric vehicles, which still rely upon a grid that cannot be sustained by windmills and solar solar power energy by science. Like you cannot actually do that in your best case scenarios. You can't sustain a grid whereby users utilizing cars that are electric can power them. Um, even using like, you know, solar panels. So it's not, it's, it's still using so-called bad forms of, uh, of energy that burn, you know, hydrocarbons. But despite that, they use lithium batteries, like you said, and, and all of the rare earths that involve massive destruction of the environment and massive amounts of hydrocarbon use for the digging machines. You can't use those digging machines with windmill or solar power energy. You need oil, natural gas. You need things like that just to make the digging machines that are utilizing massive amounts of human slave labor, child labor, destroying the environment, causing undue damage unnecessarily on every single level. And we're being told from our, our little safe spaces here in our prissy part of the comfortable part of the, the empire that we're saving nature, doing something revolutionary and getting like a little bit of a subsidy from the government by buying one of these cars, which can't even drive very far either because who the hell, you know, you can't even get more than what, like seven hours max off the battery, maybe a little bit more. I'm not even sure now what it is, but you have to charge these things repeatedly. If you, everybody charges them at the same time, they're going to blow out the grid anyway. You have to charge them at night. And the sun is not shining at night. There's usually not a lot of wind. So even if you did have some solar and wind energy, it's not going to be at night when everyone's charging it. All of this stuff, it's so self-contradictory on every level. Um, and the fact is, if we actually cared about being green, we would respect the fact that plants, chlorophyll, loves CO2. It's their food. They enjoy it. If you're a farmer and you have a greenhouse, you generally have to buy a CO2 ma machine to increase the parts per million of CO2 within your greenhouse upwards of a thousand, even 1400 parts per million, where the average is like 380 in a, in a non greenhouse environment. What is the effect? Do, is, does it, does it get super hot and do plants dry up and die with, with, with CO2 poison? No, they love it. They grow faster, quicker, more vitamin rich. They're happier. So if we cared about greening the earth, we would pump out more CO2, recognize that hydrocarbons are actually really good. It might look a little ugly and maybe you don't want to use too much of it. You don't, you don't want to, you don't want to poison your, your water systems. Obviously you don't want to use pollution, but CO2 is not a pollution. It's not that at all. You could desalinate water. You could green deserts. We, instead we're, we're doing the opposite. 
So we're making more, we're destroying hydroelectric dams in California. There's been 52 that have been destroyed in the past two years in, in California, paying millions of dollars to destroy hydroelectric dams, destroying reservoirs. That's destroying the ability for farmers to access water in order to free the deserts, which have been artificially constrained by human society. Back in idiot, you know, they say ignorant times of the 40s and 50s when we still built things and we didn't know that that deserts had human rights. So they're actually doing this insane shit when we could be ending the, the, the drought crisis of California by just using basic technologies that are available right now to desalinate water from the ocean, bring it in, create abundance. We don't have to create scarcity. We can create abundance. You know, they could do the same thing for Africa. They're already doing it in Africa, frankly, you know, and China's helping them do actually create abundance in Africa, you know, green deserts. They're doing it in China as well, moving like water the way we used to move water in, in water diversion projects in the in the 60s when JFK and, and like sane pol politicians were not killed yet. They're doing that in China, moving water into the Gobi Desert, fresh water that's going to green the, the desert. That's why through India and China together, the world today has 5% more biomass than it did 20 years ago. That NASA, NASA satellites just discovered through economic industrial development that is being led. 80% of that is being led by China and India who are not on the, on the, on the death cult degrowth uh, trip right now. So it's not because of us. We're doing the opposite. We're creating, we're the only thing we're creating is scarcity. And that's the, that's the intention to re reward people to create scarcity and reward them to adapt to it in a way to get us into a smaller and smaller box. As uh, we're told, that's all we can do like animals in nature in a fight for darwinian you know evolutionary principles adapting and adapting to what the zookeeper says is our habitat and that habitat the zookeeper happens to want want to make you know smaller and smaller and that's that's the it's really that unscientific it's that bestial and brutal it's that wrong <laughs> and it's so unnatural it, it kills me how un anti-human and anti-nature and anti-god this stuff it really is at the end of the day I mean, if you really break it down too, even with the car thing, it's all a form of control in order to keep people into smaller areas because they, you can't go far distances in these electric cars unless you charge them halfway through. And realistically, yeah. like you were kind of saying earlier, like the whole intention of humans is to be able to explore. But if you keep people in these smaller areas and you scare them and you're using their morals against them, that's saying that it'll be good for the environment. If you stay in this small area and you're not traveling far and you're not doing this and everybody can't charge their cars all at the same time uh, because it's not going to be good for the... Uh, for the power grid. So everybody needs to take turns doing it. It causes a new form of control out of fear that people are going to destroy the environment. And it also keeps people again, like you were saying, like literally in their smaller boxes, because now people think it's going to be bad for the environment to take a car and travel across the country and explore. Because even if you wanted to attempt to do that in an electric car, it's not nearly as easy because you, you can't just stop for five minutes, refill the car, keep going. You have to stop, sit for an hour, two hours, however long it takes to charge and then continue going. So, so it just makes the whole five, process way harder. Yeah, five, six hours. So that means you're, you're in the process of traveling across the country, uh, say, you know, an electric car only makes it 400 miles, you know, rather than having that five minute stop every uh, couple hours, you know, you're going to turn, essentially, you're going to have a half a day's trip of what you'd have on oil with an electric car because the other half of the day is going to be spent charging the car. Uh, yeah, as if, and, and this all is presumed on the idea that there will be charging stations between cities along the way, which there won't be. That's not it at all. There's there, so you know, like I mean, Canada. Look at Canada. It, it this is life under the British Empire for for 250 years. Canada is the most. It's it's the it's one of the biggest 
nations as far as landmass is concerned, as far as potential is concerned, it's huge. There's a lot we could do if you if people cared to go into the if they cared to explore and cared to develop and make things better, there's a lot of great, great development potential in Canada. But we're the most underdeveloped zone, really, in so many ways. We have a, a very good quality of life. There's a lot of hydroelectric power that was built up in the 50s and 60s and some into the 70s, and then it stopped. So our infrastructure is still decaying, just like in America. But uh, we only have like seven cities in all of Canada, seven cities. You know, like it's 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 a fraction. It's it's one tenth of the population of America existent for the same amount of time as the as the lower United States has survived, has been around. But we have one tenth of the population a bigger land area, all of the cities, like 95% of our, of our, of our pop of our population, it lives within something like 80 kilometers from the U S border in Montreal. You got Quebec city, you got, uh, Ottawa, Toronto, Saskatoon with maybe 300,000 people. And you got like Vancouver. I mean, that, that's it. That's and driving between like Ontario after you pass the, the last major city in, in Ontario, it's like 24 hours of nothing until you get to like the next city. It's nothing there. They're, you're you're not going to go anywhere. So, yeah, I mean, they, they want to definitely keep people into a new feudal system where like back before the age of the American Revolution, before the age of the nation state, before the the, the Renaissance in, in the medieval structures of Europe, the 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 the, the human the humans living under the Lord's estate were not allowed to move outside of certain allocated boundaries. They couldn't pass certain roads. They couldn't hunt the, the, the Lord's rabbits, you know, or else you would be like drawn and quartered. Um, that very, very strict controls of what you were allowed to do in terms of thinking, mind, emotion, physical motion, what you were allowed to do, what time it was when you were expected to die. Um, that was decided upon by the Lords as well, who would, oftentimes you know just artificially contract um the food resources that would be brought into your part of the uh the world we saw that with the irish too um there was a conscious effort to make sure that there was no food in ireland under the guise of british free trade but really you had gun like actual british soldiers deployed to make sure that the irish were exporting the vital food that they were producing to the British, the British Empire's global colonies, instead of eating it to stop to solve their their hunger crisis, resulting in at least two million dying during the so-called potato famine. And it's not like they were only eating potatoes, as if they had no other food than potatoes. They had livestock, they had wheat, they had all sorts of things. But it's a big myth that's been created for the for society to cover up the fact that it was a consciously, scientifically calculated Malthusian policy of population reduction for the Irish to, to break them physically and break them morally and, and make them more slavish to the controlling mechanisms of the city of London, which they've been doing also to India. They've been doing it to Africa under the past 80 years of globalization. They've been doing this everywhere. And that's why a lot of these countries of the world right now are, um, are, are so quick to, to jump off this train wreck when they're being provided an alternative system in the form of what you see from Iran, China, Russia, that have provided a completely different way of organizing through the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, the BRICS Plus, which now has 19 new member states that are all applying, including Myanmar and a bunch of African countries. They're, they're, they're enthusiastically looking at that direction because, frankly, they've been so burned by the Nazis running the Western architecture for the past, you know, centuries, but really the last 80 years has been really bad. Um, that, I mean, we have 
in a sense, reason to be hopeful in a in a certain level that there is there is a battle where the the nation state structures are being used as powers to do to do battle with the oligarchy. Um, it's just that in our part of the world, it's not where the fight's happening. It's it's happening outside of our part of the world, which is behind what's you know when people are trying to make sense of what's going on with the U.S. military industrial complex in China's backyard surrounding China with a global NATO, you know, setting up military bases in Japan, South Korea and Taiwan and, and, you know, working Nazis in Ukraine to expand NATO around Russia's perimeter and in the Arctic. This is what they're really trying to crush is this danger of a new alternative system of political, cultural, economic um, architecture emerging which is uh, is based on on something a little bit more natural than what we've been living under for the past since JFK was killed, especially. <laughs> I mean, <clears throat> it's definitely one of those things too that when it comes to history, just in general or news in general, it's all set. We only get the the piece of information that's said by like our our big big brother, for example. That mm-hmm. you're not getting that full rounded view of everybody else in the aspect of even being able to put your 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 feet in somebody else's shoes. You're only hearing it from one perspective and in turn, it's completely polarizing your opinion based off of that because they intentionally make everybody else look like they're the enemy. But if you realistically actually started to look into all of these different sides, you'd probably get a way better, well-rounded view of what's actually happening in the world. But that's hard to do for the average person because you'll notice that a lot of different things are blocked, especially in Canada. Um, I hear a lot of people talking about how they will look up like a specific show and if it doesn't fit something that they want to do, they can't find it at all. And when you start looking into VPNs and actually figuring out how VPNs work and you start doing research using VPNs where if you look up a conflict and, you know, it's just for example, say there's a, there's a conflict between the United States and, and through Russia. If you look at everything from the news standpoint from the American perspective and then you use a VPN and you change your location to Russia and you start looking at everything through the Russian perspective, you'll notice that the perspectives are completely different because it's like two people telling the story of the same scenario. Of course, they're always going to make themselves not sound like the bad guy in that scenario. And just like most things and just like investigative work from even even just like a police officer, you get all different views of everybody's perspective of what's happening. And in turn, you take the common points, then that's where the actual story's at is the common points and the common threads between all of them. And you have to start throwing out all of these biased opinions and realize that 99% of what the average person is getting fed, no matter what country you're in, is a completely biased opinion opinion to fit the narrative of whatever's being pushed by where you live. Yeah, exactly. And, and exactly like, like I was mentioning earlier about the individual being able to, when we're being human and, and not, you know, uh, a, a, a talking, you know, human computer, uh, but real, a real human, we're always able to like get out of our skin, position ourselves in the other, right? Get vicariously into the, the heart of another person, feel how they feel and expand our ability to look back upon ourselves from that other person's perspective and do that reciprocally all the time as it, as an active agency we can do the same that's the, the same thing applies to other cultures too right like to understand um india china iran russia you know we could just be fed spoon-fed crap from our our media even the alternative media gets sucked into this stuff which is don't fool yourselves people who might be listening right now even the alternative media landscape is completely full of intelligence agency run operations narratives that are designed in order to give you a false sense of uh, non-mainstream explanatory narratives, but that ultimately are still designed to weaponize you in various ways to become a mob 
that will acquiesce to your own destruction or the 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 launching of a war like i was listening to you know a speech by marco rubio speaking to a bunch of anti-woke conservatives saying something very reasonable about how he was going off on the the transgenderism absurdity that's prevalent everywhere and, and is infesting our military as well and you know and he was he's getting this this mob of people who are generally anti great reset you know on fire riled up anti you know anti bolshevik mob and uh, and that's all good you know but then all of a sudden he's like no we shouldn't have our military uh dealing with what gender they are we should be having our military bomb china and the whole like auditorium went up in in fire these people were so into supporting these anti great reset people who don't want to die they don't want to be like you know part of a of a mass culling they're not bad people they want to feed their families but now they're championing the bombing of china you're fucking kidding me like <laughs> it's it's that brain dead and so and and a lot of these people are, are into alternative media i mean i'm listening to alex jones talking about the chai comms that are at the heart of the great reset and and all are out to to destroy us and he's he's got the the john birch society controllers coming onto his show now and i like alex jones i i, I don't think he's a bad guy but the fact that he's a guy like that could also be championing uh, psyops that are ultimately bringing us into supporting. I mean, who's who's got the military bases? China's got two military bases out of their country. The U.S. has 890 military bases outside of their own country and 100,000 U.S. soldiers stationed around China's perimeter running belligerent saber-rattling military exercises, promoting separatist movements inside of Taiwan and Hong Kong um, and and Tibet and Xinjiang that are being supported by the CIA, funded by, financed by the CIA to promote secession um, breakaway groupings, ethnic ethno-nationalist groupings for geopolitical purposes, not because we actually care about the liberty of the Muslims in Xinjiang or Tibet or the uh, or the Buddhists in Tibet or the, 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 the freedom lovers wearing their American flags control of Hong Kong or we don't care about of, of the the Taiwanese we don't they don't care about any of these things they just want to use or they don't care about the Ukrainians they don't care about the Ukrainian fight for freedom or democracy or the right to join the European Union they don't care about any of that they're willing they just want to use these people as sacrificial lambs to get a geopolitical effect that involves weakening their their rivals which is primarily Russia and China but other nations are very quickly jumping on board and you know the U.S. military has an, as a as a NATO, a Pacific NATO that they're trying to build up. They've got a NATO office that they just set up in Tokyo this week. You know NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, that's now going Pacific, and they're trying to like wrangle in all of these. They're trying to get Philippines into it. They're trying to get South Korea. They're trying to get Japan. They're trying to get Australia, which is easier to get into because it's part of the Five Eyes. And we're being told, yeah, China's the aggressor. China's the one that killed JFK. China killed. Uh, or destroyed, like attacked us in 9-11. That was, no, no, none of that is true. It, it, this is entirely the same operation that the founding fathers of the United States fought like hell to break away from against this hereditary structure of inbred, satanic, sociopathic, occult structures of power that goes back to ancient Babylon that have wanted to destroy the United States, undo the, the revolution of 1776, that have wanted to destroy the institution of the nation-state system itself as a structure that could be used by the people to defend ourselves from them. And ultimately, right now, the, Russia and China are the countries that have been able to wield and utilize the powers of the sovereign nation-state in the most disruptive way to the oligarchy. So, of course, of course, they've, you know, they're going full hog right now 
on wanting to um, threaten nuclear war. And if that means actually take it to the full extent, I don't know if they're willing to do that. But I think they actually might be crazy enough to do that because economically the whole system in the West is, is tanking. So if, if the system economically tanks, there's not much that can be used to stop Eurasia from coming out rather victorious, except nuclear war, maybe. So that's a concern I have. That's probably the biggest concern I have, actually. <laughs> I mean, even connecting in with all that, too, I feel like it's also still like a form of manipulation in the aspect of you have all of these people that are part of like the transgender movement. And with all yeah. of that, part of that is you almost create like a more docile group of people because their hormones are all out of whack. They don't have that drive. They don't have that fight. And I mean, more often than not, you hear about... um castrating somebody and in turn it gets rid of their like driving fight it makes them more docile so you have that on one side and then you have this other side where they're trying to push those people that are the extremists the people that are willing to fight the people that want to go to war and they're taking those people having them join the military to try to show how tough the military can be and push out all the woke people so they're creating again this polarization between the two where you have all these people that they're not worried about because they're docile and then they have some of them ploy into the military so that you have the extremists that are like, they're weak. They're not good enough to be in the military. Now I need to join the military. So in turn, you're getting rid of your problem of having all the extremists because you're willing to send them out into war, send them out into things where it's going to get them killed. And then the only people you have back at home are all of the docile people that you don't have to worry about. So it's almost like when they're doing things like this, when they're creating these ploys, they're almost like essentially making people so that they have a giant target mark on the top of their head saying, this is the guy that you're going to be able to throw into the middle of the war and he's not going to have a problem with it. And in turn, you're going to get rid of another problem because now you won't have an extremist in your country anymore. Yeah. Well said. Well, it's rarely just one thing, right? I mean, it, it, when, when dealing with people often make the mistake of, of looking, thinking mechanically about things from the standpoint of kinetic cause and effect, which is, uh, naive and not the way anything really happens. Like, you know, if, 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 if a happens, a has to like, if, 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 if this punch hits that person's cheek, then why did that person get their, their cheek punched? Well, because that, that fist was moving at this velocity with this like weight and mass. And it struck at this, this cheek, which has this amount of density at this speed. And you know, that's why that person got struck and hit. And that's why they're in the hospital. And it's like, well, that's not that's not the way reality happens. Not like one mechanical action causes one kinetic effect. There's dynamics. Dynamics is much more than the particular material expression of any particular thing going on on the on the stage. Um, and it has a lot. You know, you, the reality would be the thinking person would think like, well, what was the intention of the person who went and struck that that uh, victim, right? And and punched them. What's their intention? Well, I can't see it. It's invisible. I can see their fist. I can measure their fist's velocity, but I can't see their intention. I can't see what ideas animated them. Um, so the materialist would almost deny that. And, and, and you see the expression of that when people say, I don't believe in conspiracy theories. Conspiracy theories imply that there is some intentional organizational force making history move in a certain way that conspires based on ideas. But I mean, that's everything. You can't understand anything about history unless you start from the standpoint that Human beings are the species that organize themselves around concepts. Whether those concepts are more or less in conformity with truth, that's that's where the the drama, the discover that's that's where the battle exists. Oligarchs will try to always organize themselves around the appearance of truth, but none of the substance, the very opposite. 
Whereas humanists might say sometimes ugly things, but will like, and I shouldn't say humanists because I mean, the oligarchy calls themselves humanists too. But what good people will tend to do, <laughs> they will tend to uh, discover and apply good ideas that are in conformity with truth, like right reason, truth that's tied to our conscience and organize themselves with like-minded thinkers and conspire the way the American Revolution was the effect of many years of conspiracy. It, it was people working together with a common idea of the nature of man, the nature of government, the nature of law that had to make something happen that required a lot of co coordination, a lot of discipline, uh, working with people who were like often not fully um, understanding of what the hell is going on, but you had to still find a way to make everybody useful. Um, so good and bad alike conspire. The difference being one of those two principles is in conformity with truth. And the other one is totally in defiance of it. Um, so, I mean, we're, we're now at a point where you know, the oligarchy, they, they've done something. They've done a series of things that has a certain amount of benefit to them in the sense of creating a more pliable uh, society of fakers who, who have never had a taste of truth, who are not intrinsically bad, but they've, they've just lived and modeled themselves. I mean, a lot of young people born, you know, after who are coming of age now and were born after nine 11. These are people who have just known fakery and they, and we are, we model ourselves. Uh, we look for role models, right. To shape who are the adults we want to become. And they don't have any role models by and large. There's very few. Um, so they're, 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 they're the, the consequence of trying to figure it out by modeling fakery, being rewarded for being um, essentially the worst part of themselves that they could possibly be. There's all sorts of things to, to do that. And, you know, as a consequence too, now we have, you know, drag queens who are the digital ambassadors for the U.S. military. Um, men are, are winning the award for best actress for the Emmys and, and, you know, leading in women's sports. And the very idea that there's such a thing as men and women is becoming equivalent to, to saying I'm a fascist if you think that. And thus, you know, have no rights because you're subhuman, because you're a, a conservative fascist or something. Um, who's anti-democratic, just like the Russians who are subhuman because they're, they're anti-democratic as if they don't have democracy. Anyway, it's, 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 there's so many points of absurdity. And I think as we alluded to with the green energy fiasco, it's, um, it's largely in so many ways cannibalizing itself. Like even Greta Thunberg, poor Greta, you got to feel for this kid as well, right? Like totally like her, her childhood has been totally stolen from her by social engineers who want to use this poor kid to achieve their geopolitical ends, but she's got influence. And now what has she done? She just got arrested because she's, uh, she chained herself to a windmill farm in like the, the, the Netherlands or something or no Denmark because the windmill farm is, is, was built disrupting the, the native, uh, migration patterns of like Dutch, uh, Danish reindeer. Abby, there's just so many points of, of self-contradiction built upon contradiction that's just like created a, a structure which has incompetence everywhere. We reward incompetence and the oligarchy to carry out their their desires to get their, their thoughts and, and intentions into the domain of reality. They require auxiliaries, people like Kamala Harris's. They need Biden's. They need, um, you know, Olaf Schultz's and... Uh, Ursula van der Leyen's and Justin Trudeau's, they need these um, 
tools to be the, 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 the makers of things that, that have to become policy in the real world as far as degrees of separation. But they're idiots. They're all like so mentally deconstructed themselves that even like you said, our, our, our military, I mean, I'm not seeing so much of the actual competent men going into the military at this point. I, I've seen that all being flushed. I don't, I don't see that, that happening. Uh, but the military is self-destructing. I, I do see that. And not in, that's not necessarily a bad thing because we haven't used the military in a, in a very useful way for a very long time. Um, but in, in every level, it's just, it's, it's self, it's, it's, it's melting down under its own self-contradiction. And I think in some ways the nuclear bomb has bought us a certain amount of, of time that at no other point in human civilization's history did we ever have this amount of time to be stupid, but also to get our act together. Because in the past, before the age of the nuclear bomb, where, I mean, today there's something like, I don't know, 8,000 nuclear warheads, some very, very powerful, like magnitudes larger than Hiroshima and Nagasaki, magnitudes, um, spread out all over the earth. That created a level of risk that even the oligarchy is not necessarily enthusiastic about uh, adopting. It, you know, that, that's a level of, of lack of, the, these are control freaks. The oligarchy, one of their character traits is control. They don't like losing control of systems that they want to manage. And a, a, a nuclear war, the way that goes down is everybody shoots everything, um, which gets really hard to control. And the consequences of that involves usually a lot of collateral damage, including to your own, even if, you, even, even if these oligarchies or, or a lot of these representatives of the oligarchy have underground castles and other things, they'd rather not live for several generations in these structures. They would rather not. Um, so in every other point before the 1940s for, for thousands of years, anytime nations started acting in accordance with something that would fall, keep them, keep them out of, or, or, or induce them to fall out of the control of said inner oligarchy, you could always induce wars like we did for world war two, world war one, the Napoleonic wars, the seven years war before that there's always been like constant war that you could always manufacture. It's been a lot harder to make the big wars happen these days. They've had to do asymmetrical wars for the past 80 years. As as Not that they haven't wanted to do the big wars, but they can't do the big wars because the big players all have nuclear weapons. So again, like I'm saying, it, it bought us a certain amount of time in a good way as well as it allowed for a lot more space and time for stupidity to institutionalize, which is very bad. Um, but it's a very new dynamic that I don't think anybody's ever had to deal with up until now. <laughs> um <laughs> It's, it's interesting in that sense. I'm curious to see how it, how it plays out. I mean, I feel like war is almost, it's like a different concept than what it used to be. And the aspect of war is more of like a mental war now than like a physical war because of, again, having weapons like this and everybody being scared of that. So in turn, they almost have to be sneakier with the way they do things. And if you're looking at the world, like it may be connected going into this one world idea of like government. Uh, the way to do that, of course, would be to weaken some of the edges. So America has been known as like the strongest country forever. So in turn, in order to kind of plummet that down a bit to get everybody where they almost feel like they're on the same level, what you need to do is you instill a, uh, like somebody like Biden. That's obviously a complete idiot. He's weak. Everybody sees him as weak. The rest of the world sees him as weak. So in turn, it makes the country look weak as a whole. Then in turn, you also have this blurring of the gender lines where Men don't know how to be men anymore. Women don't know how to be women anymore. So the whole country is up in shambles. They're all confused. The country's weak. The rest of the world's seeing the country as weak. And in turn, again, it levels us out with everybody else. And if you 
like I said, taking into consideration that all of these different governments may not actually be at war with each other like they present to the average person, that it's actually just little pieces in getting into this whole bigger, big world government concept, then essentially once you're able to kind of weaken everybody and bring them down on a lower level and everybody being confused on the lines where they fit, then you can almost bring in a leader that's just this masculine, strong man leader. And in turn, the rest of the world, because of seeing all of these weak leaders, seeing all of these really confused gender blurred line leaders, they're all going to blindly follow this guy. And again, it brings in this whole other form of control where maybe... I don't know if Trump was involved in all this stuff. Maybe that was part of the original intention of what Trump could possibly be, or maybe he was intended to also kind of snare up the people that are extremists so they can almost weed them out before they try to do this whole movement. But once you get rid of all of those like standard extremists and you just have all of the average people that just want to go back to like the original way of thinking, all you'd have to do is just present this masculine male leader and everybody's going to follow him. And in turn, you may be able to get the rest of the world to follow him because everybody's confused on where they fit, what category they fit in. And that, that could, again, could just be part of the process in instilling this one world government is to make everybody start off on the same level and then instill somebody that brings back the values of what everybody morally and in the back of your mind knows how things are supposed to be and it'll be a new fresh method of thinking and everybody will see it that way when realistically it's just bringing the old but with a new form of control on top of it well you definitely want to look at the the facts as well as the theory and have both jump back and forth always like uh like look at the empirical data go back to the theory look at the imperial data back to the theory and modify your theory according to discoverable data as best as it can be accrued right and you were talking about looking at the russian media looking at the russian policies looking at our policies looking at our media and bouncing back and forth so that you're never just like sitting in one echo chamber um i would say from my standpoint the the death cult ultimately wants to kill off. I mean, so their their ultimate objective is always what I what I hold in mind, right? Like at the end of the day, I know they want to kill off at least ninety percent of the world population. The computer models that I think have been agreed upon assert that about one billion is sort of the ideal sustainable number to be kept at some sort of a like a a, a perpetual cap forever. That's sort of what their their computer models have have all consensus based gone for. But I mean, they scare people into thinking that it's about resources, but realistically, they're coming at it from the form of this is the amount of people that we're able to control. And if it gets over than that, then it starts getting messy and they just contradict and just mess with people's heads and make them think that they're it's for a totally different reason what they're actually thinking and trying to trying to make happen. Yeah, exactly. No, it's entirely about it's entirely about control, but it's also about so the the invariance that I focus on is um that all oligarchical systems are religiously committed to population reduction in order to maintain as the maximum control possible. They also are, what goes into that as well is um, cultural resets, like cutting people off of any type of cultural residues that would connect the individuals of each generation to their past with a specific focus on anything that connects them to an idea of their nation, their civilization, God, family, those things have to go. So anything which which disrupts that is useful and will be promoted by oligarchical systems. Um, the other thing is stupidification. So maximizing the amount of stupid people who feel like they know something for the elites, but don't really know substance. They just know mechanical formalisms that have been in, in, embedded into their their human um, computer computer brains 
because they never learned how to think like humans. They just learned how to think like logic machines, uh, adopting and using memory and being rewarded for their memory recollection and repetition. Um, so those are for the controlling managerial class. And then the the crushing of a desire to pursue knowledge and discovery for the plebes who are expected to be useless eaters, maybe there for entertainment for the elite, maybe there to like, you know, clean the the solar panels that have that get dusty every night, you know. Um, They're always going to need those people to do those nitty gritty jobs they don't want to do. <laughs> exactly. You're always going to need some of that, no matter how much they, they say, you know, machines are going to do all these these things. No, it's not true. Um, so they they want to keep a certain amount of those those alive. So need people those. to fix the machines because they also don't want to do that either. Yeah. And so they, <laughs> they allow for mechanics, but not thinking like so people who can have technical proficiency, but that's it. N- nothing beyond that. Um. So those are the, the, the primary variants. And, I, and the way I see it is it's a corrupt, it's we're, we're the three facets of the human experience are mind, body, and soul, you know, uh, mind being the intellectual corruption or intellectual amelioration that is supposed to be developed in a, in a healthy economy and school system that gives kids an intellect, which is capable of self feeding and making discoveries spiritual. So it's tied to the spirit, the, the health of the sense of the soul, you know, the idea that while my body can be made healthier or sicker, my soul can also be made healthier or sicker based upon the, the passions or the vices that I cultivate or uh, heal from. The, the pleasures of, of for example, uh, wisdom, the pursuit of wisdom being a higher pleasure than the pleasure of cake. So um, that's, that's the other thing. And you can corrupt both of those things um, through the standpoint of cultural warfare, making people love arts that are ultimately ugly, like look at a lot of the modern contemporary arts, modern abstract arts, or a lot of the contemporary music that is designed to um, make the ugly appear to be something you should respect and even pay a lot of money for. Um, Mumble rap, drug rap. (laughs) Drug rap, yeah, listen to lyrics in a lot of the popular songs, uh, rap music, as well as a lot of the other other music too. Just then you're, what's what's pumped in the the top 40 music when you're in your car listening to music, just pay attention to the lyrics. And it's either just mundane bubblehead crap or just outright degeneracy that's supposed to inflame the worst part of you possible. Or insane Um, materialism in the process of putting down people, other people in the process. Yeah, there's a whole variety of ways to make people worse um, through the lyrics, through the, the 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 tones utilized and promoted, including in the visual arts, the mu- the movie scripts, right? The things on Netflix, the vast majority of which are you know promoting certain concepts that are fucking with your idea of what it means to be a human, what the future is, all of these things. Like there's 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 agendas embedded in most of the scripts that Hollywood is promoting. That's why the CIA has has openly been funding Hollywood scripts and uh, you know f- film productions for many decades. It's not a coincidence. One thing um, I've noticed with that too is that the whole there's this whole push to get away from the masculine male in movies. It's very rare that you see that classic masculine strong male character. More often than not, when it comes to most things that have to do with uh, movies, TV shows, the dad is either a bumbling idiot or two, he left the family and the mom's the independent one in the family taking care of everything. And even just in like modern movies where there's normally that masculine role. Like I saw the new recent, the new Evil Dead recently, and there was always that masculine Ash, like he's he's the dude, the newest one. There's not any type of masculine male character whatsoever, and they completely bring in the whole thing with like there being a strong female 
um, strong female hero. But again, that's not that there's like a problem with that directly, but the problem is when you see this across all forms of media, that there's no, there's barely any masculine strong characters. And if they are, then usually they're an idiot or they end up being a bad guy at some point. It's pushing people yeah. away from that idea and it's intentional yeah. and I'm seeing exactly. it everywhere. It's driving me crazy. That, that's, that's what makes it problematic is that not, not that you have strong women, but rather that it's tied to an agenda to undo the strong men uh, character. Like, why can't you have like stronger women who have dignity as well as strong men? Like, why do you have to do the either or thing the way that they've been doing it um, and setting men against women, you know, and, and setting whites against blacks. They're, they're just setting everybody against everybody according to very material components of their human identity, which is not what makes them essentially human. There's something more universal about us that makes us human first. And we've forgotten what that is, or we've never been, been given a taste of it. And this is what, the reason why I'm saying this. And then the material. So, you know, you, you got the, 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 the spirit mind body thing, right? Body wise, obviously destroy the food production, destroy the infrastructure, destroy the, the physical world that we live in and, and create scarcity there. And, you, and you've corrupted all three domains pretty well. They people live shorter lives, blah, blah, blah. So when I look at my assessment geopolitically, like I'm, I'm the, uh, uh, most of my work for the past 20 years, since I started really getting more active in, in this field, um, I'm 40 now, but I started I, I shouldn't say 20 years, been more like 17 years, um, has been in geopolitical, the geopolitical realm. Um, I started off for two years as a hardcore, just focusing, focusing on Masonic operations, conspiracies. Like that was like my, my every day for the first two years of like waking up to the fact that I'm a, I'm a, I'm an idiot normie living in a giant cave of illusion. Right. And so that was like my first thing. And I was like, wait a minute, I have to shift the way I'm thinking about this. Cause I'm just starting to see like everywhere I see a triangle, I'm just seeing Masonic, you know, innuendo. And I'm like, maybe sometimes triangles are just triangles. And I had to take a step back and think of a new, a new way of approaching, um, what I was seeking. And so, uh, geopolitically began helping in history, doing some serious deep dives into trying to make sense of, of history was a big therapeutic thing for me. Um, so when I'm analyzing the current breakdown geopolitically, I'm looking at where are the different points historically where the oligarchy came close to achieving their, their technocratic feudal eugenics religion in the past, let's say century and seeing where they failed and why they failed. Where were the fights? How did more creative moral human beings organize against this very powerful ancient force of evil and disrupt their agenda before their agenda could manifest into, into actuality. And it did. There was actually three different uh, attempts before JFK was killed. There were three close attempts that were made to consolidate a, a banker's dictatorship under a new world order in a post-nation state order of transhumanist or proto-transhumanist um, structures for depopulation. That, that We came close. So let's like, why did they not succeed? So I, I've written several books just sort of breaking down some of those battles between the nationalists in America around, you know, McKin President McKinley, uh, President Warren Harding, who also died in, in 1923, um, Franklin Roosevelt, who also did some, some things that even the people who like Franklin Roosevelt today, mostly Democrats, they're idiots. They have no idea what Roosevelt actually was. Um, he actually stopped the banker's dictatorship twice and survived two assassination attempts and really declared war on Wall Street. He sent hundreds of Wall Street bankers to prison. This guy was like a powerhouse who really, he, he wasn't working by himself either. He had a whole network of people who had been working with Warren Harding a decade earlier. 
um, at fighting the League of Nations. And, uh, and so he had a big support base. It not, I don't see anything similar to that today or very little. Um, that being said, the, I also asked myself, why didn't they succeed in achieving their one world government back in the 90s when, you know, George Soros was pretty much running China, when, when George Soros and the CIA were running Russia? Um, what, what's up with that? And I, I always hold back in my mind, like the, the depopulation agenda. It is Russia and China are what they are doing, accelerating or, or benefiting the overarching agenda for physical, material and spiritual depopulation of their people? Or that, or is the, are they doing the opposite? So that's very, very important. the The average quality of life in China has gone from like three percent of the population twenty years ago living in in middle income brackets. Now it's fifty four percent in twenty years. They've been able to do things that I've never seen any nation do. That involves keeping making people live longer, but also when you watch Chinese film like watch the shows that are Chinese or movies that are being promoted. They're all highly moral. Like they, they're all tied to, there's like what's called a Confucian Renaissance going on right now. So they're actually doing things that involve tapping back into the like the thousands of year long traditions, which was the opposite of what Mao did back in the fifties or not the fifties, the sixties between 66 and, and 72, especially which was the peak of the, the cultural, the cultural revolution, you know, where, where young people were, were encouraged to like tattle on their, their parents and, uh, and destroy all of the old traditions of Buddhism and Confucianism and everything that had moral values that tied the, the people to the past or the future. That was all crushed. Um, China ended their cultural revolution, recognized that it was a mistake and have been trying to heal ever since. The one-child policy is something that was brought in by Henry Kissinger and the Club of Rome into China from the outside, and China's been trying to heal from that. They've, un- they've undid that completely. So whereas us, our cultural revolution that happened in the 60s, where you don't trust anybody over, over 30, you know, you, the idea of like Christianity was seen as like square anathema, like for squares only, that, uh, that's continued now for 50-plus years straight. We didn't stop our cultural revolution. It's now in its new phase of de-evolution. So the, the question is always in my mind, where do I see the depopulation agenda and where do I see it being resisted? And there's definitely a fight to resist it through action and words, but also like action. Like I said, the, the expelling of George Soros, the, the bringing online Nash of national banking structures, the way we used to do to build big projects that create abundance. So in China, they're creating massive abundance and saying, and there's been a lot of offers to the West to help us do it too, but we've said no. So all of these things for me doesn't equate to why they would be controlled opposition. Why wouldn't they have just allowed for Soros to stay as in control of China or is it in Russia as he was in the 90s or in China as he was in the 80s and early 90s? Why did he get kicked out of both of those countries? Why didn't they just keep him in control? Did they, did, was it just because they were bored and they wanted, you know, that they had full control of Russia in the 90s? Um, now if you, if you look at today, the question of like the, uh, the, the vaccines or like the great reset, well, China hasn't allowed in MRNA technology. Like they, they, they've blocked it. Although Pfizer, the Bill and Melinda Gates foundation have gotten really pissed off with them for them having promised to bring in MRNAs. They haven't let it go in. Um, they, they, they've made sure hydroxychloroquine and, and zinc and, uh, I, ivermectin or was widely available in China for their people. And we didn't, 
we never allowed ivermectin. Like we destroyed the doctors' lives across the transatlantic who tried to promote that, whereas in China it was massively supported. Um, and again, the vaccines were never permitted with this mRNA tech ever. So then, you know, the other thing I would say is when it comes down to like um, bat, like geopolitics, I look at it kind of like a combat sport. And the difference between like when I'm looking at a combat sport in an arena, like and I'm seeing like two, like let's say I'm looking at mixed martial arts fighters going at it. I'm seeing something happening that's going to finish probably within the hour in front of my eyes. And that's the way it's going to go down. Whereas with with the fight of geo, like in geopolitics, you're dealing with decades or centuries of the fight, but you're dealing with the similar principle. And, if, and in the context of that longer period of time, an, an opponent can generate a, a capability that can do a lot of damage, like a new weapon can be developed. And if the, the opponent, the, the weaker one remains weaker and doesn't develop some symmetrical response, some symmetrical means of countering either by defense or counteroffensive, such a, a new weapon then they will be annihilated. So when I look at some of the things that China has brought online in terms of the, uh, um, the, 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 what is it? The elements of the social credit structures. Are they, are they punishing people for being non-green or uh, do I see that? No, I, I don't see that. The, it's not what I'm seeing coming online. There, there's generally people being punished for like, you know, jaywalking, smoking inside, doing these things, but also they've been using it to kick out the CIA because up until like John Bolton just gave an interview where he was complaining that because of China's crackdown and their use of their their social credit structures, that they haven't been able to maintain their network of CIA operatives inside of China. So China's actually in, a, in the middle of going like 4.6 million high officials within China have been punished and kicked out of the uh, the, the Communist Party. Some of them are super high level, like a former justice minister, two heads of the of the uh, um, what are, what's it called the um, Ministry of Intelligence, basically the CIA of China. Mm-hmm. Two of them were given thirty year life sentences uh, for being CIA agents. I mean, four point six—that's a huge amount of crackdown. Some of them are tied to, you know, the operatives that are sitting in Vancouver and New York, working with Miles Guo and Steve Bannon, and running Epoch Times as part of the CIA operation. That's feeding a lot of this of the information to radicalize the right wing conservatives of America and Canada. So you got this whole thing where there there's like, did China create any of this stuff? Did they create the Great Reset or are they responding to it? And I'm seeing and all of the things I don't like about China, a lot all of those things have been created in a response to something else that is out to destroy them and, and undo their their civilization and reduce them back to a slave society the way Kissinger originally wanted when he went to China in the seventies, because it was Kissinger, right? Who set up mm-hmm. the deal whereby China was going to be the forever slave society with a local oligarchy of billionaires loyal to the IMF that would manage the slave class in China and China would never develop as a modern society. And the same thing was done, but it was done more successfully in uh, Russia in the nineties under uh, perestroika. And Russia was never supposed to recover. There was like Zbigniew Brzezinski even said it. Russia should be divided up into twelve little micro federations, and not, the thing that we call Russia shouldn't exist. So again, I always go back to why didn't it work when they had so much more influence in those zones? Why didn't it work? What was the fight about? Is there a fight? If there is, what's it look like? Um, 
So I and I find that saying simply everybody is equally just controlled parts, um, it becomes we lose a lot of nuance. Like we lose a lot of the the story if we just dismiss it all as controlled opposition. The way like James Corbett or Catherine Austin Fitz or Ian Davis. Like there's a lot of analysts right there, like who aren't really doing much with their life beyond being promoters of the idea that there's nothing you can do except for think local, get off the grid, be Amish. Um, don't like, there's nothing to fight for cause everybody's controlled. So all you can do is think, think local, which frankly, in my view, it sets us up for being slaughtered because if we're all like getting off the grid and just like, you know, trying to protect our, our, our local mini surroundings in little micro communities, we're going to be that much more easy to clip off. It's not like the Amish are going to be more protected because <laughs> the, <laughs> the military industrial complex is afraid of them or something. They're going to be taken out. Out that much more easy um, as everybody would if they think that way. So uh, yeah, that's, I guess, my, that's my take on that. I guess uh, with that, there's a lot more that we could talk about and I would love to have you back yeah. on in the future, of course, because we just went for almost two and a half hours and we could definitely go even longer, but I always like to yeah. leave the show on a high note. So if there's any words of wisdom that you could bestow on the listeners, what would it be? Well, I think that people should think about themselves from the standpoint of their future selves and their unborn children and unborn grandchildren, if need be, looking back and thinking, what did my grandpa do or my grandma um, at that time of crisis, that, that crazy time that I'm reading about in my history books that humanity went through, um, and, uh, and, and see if we would be proud to have a good response, that they would be proud of us because of what we did um, during this time. I think that that's a good mental exercise to always go back to revisit again and again um, the way some of us are proud of our great grandparents who did so much to, you know, fight against the Nazi machine that was also funded by Wall Street and London back then and came close to a, a new world order back in the 40s, um, which was made um Der which was aborted because of the type of sacrifices that many people were willing to make, including John F. Kennedy, who was a, a veteran of World War II and many others. But so, I mean, we always have to just think about to greater or lesser degrees of amplitude, the type of effect that we have. And I think that that's for me. And I, I would encourage other people too to take on this philosophy in, in varying degrees. Why I, I'm so passionate about, I'm more passionate about the past and future than I am about, you know, people say, oh, just chill out, just live in the present. It's so much better just to live in the present. And for me, I find the, 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 pr the past and future are more exciting because the present is not open to change. There's no type of creative change that can happen. The present is all is the consequence of the past and um, the seeds of the future. But you can't change what is. You can only change. The future is always being recreated all the time. Like every single moment in the future is being recreated to varying degrees based upon every individual's free will choosing to live by thoughts and ideas or not, or to remain cowardly and, and to whatever, do the little things that we don't respect and allow evil to just like grow. But every time somebody changes their, their mental and moral gears to become um, a different, a better type of person that they have within them, it changes the future potentials. The future is pure potential. And the past, if you think about it from the standpoint of the way I, I try to approach history and, and the, the better people that I the better historians that I've respected and have been inspired by have looked at history in a similar way. Um, I think is useful that history is not the past. It's, it's, it's the, the his, history is our, it's, it's futures that did or didn't happen to varying degrees. So history is about 
different ideas of the future that uh, did or didn't come into being for good or for bad. And it's a struggle. There's a tension built into the fabric of, 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 of human history shaping our world as a trajectory of motion into the future, which, which is um, – it's very rich with drama. It's really exciting. And the way they teach it in school is shit because it kills the excitement you can get by not understanding any of the the rich stories, you know, all these cool things that they just make it a, a, a bunch of things you memorize about events on a timeline. Um, so, yeah, I just say people should try to, to, to use a different hypothesis about their, their identities as themselves living in history. Um, and, uh, and read books like turn off, unplug and, and, you know, read some, some good books, read some Ben Franklin, read some link, some of Lincoln's speeches, you know, give yourself a few days listening to the speeches by, by Martin Luther King Jr. And listen to his sermons and just see, or, or John F. Kennedy, just find all of the transcription transcribed speeches, audio or, or, or written that you could get your hands on. There's so much crap out there, but look at people who actually made the mental shift, walk through the fire of fear became better people and intervened knowing that their life would be possibly uh ended early because they were impassioned by a higher idea of goodness and truth that they had faith in that gave them the strength to do it and do it really creatively and well and feed off of those types of people and and while you're doing that take note of the 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 common um characteristics that you'll find in all of them, how they structure their thoughts, how they how they communicate, how they try to inspire others, how they communicate ideas, how they think about deep matters of philosophy. Um, think about those things while you're while you're doing that, and just like feed off of the the good things like that, feed the soul, and then revisit basic questions and hypotheses you have about the world you're living in and, and what role you could play in it. So that that's how I would end it. I mean, very good. Honestly, wonderful words to live by. And I even go into the aspect of, I completely agree with expand your mind rather than fill it and stand up when there's a need to stand up because at no point in history has anything great ever been done when people sit down and comply with what the higher powers are telling them. The greatest things that have ever happened in history is when somebody stands up at the right time and makes that big difference. And that's never going to happen if this generation doesn't think about the past and the future and assess when the right time to stand up is. Otherwise, you kind of end up with kind of like how it is now where everybody's standing up and yelling about stuff, but it's not about the right stuff. So it means absolutely nothing. Stand up at the correct times. Well said. Yeah, <laughs> I, I can I can support that. <laughs> and uh, for anybody that's enjoyed the conversation, you made reference to your books a few times, of course, too. Uh, where can people find you, find your work and find your books? Right. Yeah. Thank you for the plug opportunity. Um, all right. So the best thing, I guess the easiest way would be to go to uh, canadianpatriot.org. It's, uh, it's my main website that I've been managing since 2012. And all of the books, easy to find, all of the old archival issues of the Canadian Patriot that I was publishing um, since 2012. I, I stopped publishing them, but they're all, all 30 of them are available. Uh, easy to find on that website. Um, my wife's book as well on the, the, the roundtable um, British Empire Origins of, of International Fascism, going back to the 19th century. That's also a new book that's that's up on my website. Um, RisingTideFoundation.net, more of an educational nonprofit that I started with my wife too, that uh, people can check out. RisingTideFoundation.net's good. Uh, last thing I suppose would be Substack. So that's sort of my, increasingly my bread and butter is uh, my Substack. 
um, articles, video material content that I that I produce pretty regularly. Uh, people can subscribe free or get the paid upgrade, matthewerritt.substack.com. That, that, that's a lot right there. And of course, I'll include all of your uh, links in the show description so everybody can find them quick and easy, of course. And uh, I appreciate you making the time to come on today, man. This has been a great conversation and I'm really looking forward to the next time we get to sit down and talk. Yeah, me too. Yeah, thanks. If you guys enjoyed the show, don't forget to take an extra five seconds to leave a rating on Spotify. Or if you're willing to take an extra 30 seconds to leave a review on iTunes, I would definitely appreciate it. And I will read it on the show and give you guys a shout out. Uh, If you also have a friend that you think would enjoy this episode, don't forget to share this episode with them through word of mouth. And uh, if anybody's trying to get a hold of me for any reason whatsoever, there's multiple ways to do so. One of which is through Instagram. Uh, The second one is emailing me at increase of our reality podcast at outlook.com. The third option, of course, is going to the link tree, filling out the submission form, and that'll go directly to my email. Uh, keep your eyes in the spam and junk folder. Make sure that none of my replies get lost because once in a while, all that stuff kind of gets pushed that way because of uh, running a podcast and sending out so many links. And uh, everything that I mentioned, of course, all available under the link tree, which is L-A-N-K-T-R period E-E slash inquiries of our reality podcast. And with that, Hope you guys enjoyed the conversation and I'll catch you on the next one. Have a good night, everybody. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success.